Hello and welcome to the Dark Material Podcast, where we cut through into the many worlds of His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. Sometimes subtly. And sometimes not so much. From clouds to cigars. Join <laughs> us in this spoiler-free read-long journey into the dark. I'm Ian. And I'm Amy, and I'm confused. And this week we're talking through chapter 18 of Northern Lights, Fog and Ice. So I'm, I'm hoping we'll get to your from X to Y later on in the chapter, because I have no idea what you're talking Cigar. about. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I'll get on to what happened last time. But hmm. first, I have a couple of a couple of updates, I think. Yeah. So one is that last time uh, in our last episode, we had a Twitter poll on which one of us was correct or not about the Sabisk Regiment. Um, and we're just going to give you a little peep behind the curtain here in saying that we have released that episode today. So we won't have the results of the Twitter poll Ooh. now. No, we will people in our are seeing episode. the time warp that is our podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also like weird, weird day today because this is the day after lockdown was announced for mm. um, coronavirus. Just a day to even more. So mm-hmm. it's like super topical and um, timeless. <laughs> but yeah, so it's a, it's a weird time. But hopefully we will uh, crack on with some podcasting and get some good content yep. to distract you all. Nothing else to do. Yeah. Apart from work. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yep. So in our last episode, Lyra has an unnerving cup of chamomile with Mrs. Coulter mm-hmm. uh, after being saved from severance by her in Bolvanga. Lyra also pretends she's still on Mrs. Coulter's side and questions her about why the adults in Bolvanga are doing such horrible things to the children, learning from Mrs. Coulter that this is to save children from the infection of dust and mm. from the troubling thoughts that happen to people during the puberty. As as you can tell from my inflection, hopefully... Um, I, Sex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, do, I'm doing air quotes for a lot of those words uh, from Mrs. Coulter. Um, so Mrs. Coulter tries to get the alethiometer from Lyra, but instead gets her spy fly decoy tin and a monkey face full of metal beetle as she tries to open what she thinks um, is a, a container for the lithometer, which is, you know, good comeuppance for Mrs. Coulter mm-hmm. there. Twisted on your own beetle hard. <laughs> that is the phrase. That is mm-hmm. the idiom, I think. Um, so whilst Mrs. Coulter is distracted, Lara makes a run for it, setting off the fire alarms and causing some minor explosions for good measure, you know, just because why not? And... The other kids in Bolvanger understand that this is the signal for escape, given Lyra's uh, sowed that seed amongst them. And so they all leave the buildings for the Arctic tundra and then start to make a break for it, narrowly avoiding being shot by the Bolvanger guards by first snowballing them in the face, mm. then arrowing him in the face by the mm-hmm. witches, Feast. and then <laughs> and then finally by uh, Yorick bear-clawing him in the face. Yeah. So they got faced, for sure. The children stagger out into the wild, cold and dark night, so looking good for them. But just before they die from hypothermia, uh, the Egyptians miraculously appear and save them all. But then again, in another twist of what the hell's going on, Mrs. Coulter randomly appears on a snowmobile from nowhere and grabs Lyra and then Roger fights her and then they both get grabbed into a balloon. There's a lot of grabbing going on. And and Lyra and Roger, actually no, they get grabbed by Serafina Pecola, who then takes them to a balloon. It's not at all confusing. I don't know why I'm struggling. (laughs) Um, And then we end the chapter with Lyra and Roger in the balloon with Yorick, Lee and Serafina Pekala and some witches pulling them along. Mrs. Coulter's disappeared. The Egyptians have laid waste to Volvanga and Lyra, Roger, Yorick, Lee and Serafina and witches co are all going to Salbard and why is Lyra going? We don't know. We may never know. Maybe we'll mm-hmm. find out this chapter. Maybe we won't. 
but that's what happened cool. last time. Good, good, good recap. <laughs> and we are in part three. Mm-hmm. Svalbard. Yeah, this is like without doubt the best part of the book. Excellent. Ian Ian can finally rejoice. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So my first note for for this week is just fuck yes. (laughs) Just to reiterate my excitement of getting out of Bullbanger and onto the more badass shit of bears and witches Mm -hmm. and the journey to the far, far north. Very good. So Lee, we start the chapter with Lee tucking Lyra in. So she's fallen asleep. Um, And understandably, I'd be knackered. You know, she's been yep. blowing up buildings and running out yeah. into the tundra. Stressful day. I mean, um, Lyra will sleep at the drop of a hat. That's true. So. That's true. Uh, so he tucks her in under some furs. And then basically uh, we enter a conversation between Lee, the aeronaut, as a reminder, mm-hmm. and Serafina, the witch queen, which is just a cool job title. Um, so Lee says, this girl's pretty important, huh? To which Serafina replies... <laughs> Should I? Do? Well, I'm not going to always do the voice. So <laughs> I think get, we both have to. Always super do annoying, the voice. but um, more than she will know. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! I can do that. I can do that better. Okay. More than she will know. Oh yeah, that that's the good level that's, of annoying the, for Sarah Peter Pegasus. Screeching high pitch. That, <laughs> I don't know why she's like ridiculously posh Kensington English, but anyway. No, no, that's fine. Um, you can do Serafina from now on. Yeah. And also, can I just say that, that that whole exchange kind of reminds me of of the Master of Jordan and the librarian, their whole kind of conversation mm. about, like, Lyra's important. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, she's super fucking important. Yeah. And the consul as well and his... I don't know. It's all interesting that we're getting all of this. Yeah. The protagonist is super important, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Neon sign. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, blinking. Um, yeah, it is interesting, especially the sort of more than she will, will know point. Mm. Not more than she knows. Um, there's a sort of future tense to that that I think is kind of interesting almost more than she will ever appreciate Mm. which is kind of cool Lee goes on to ask then if they're in any further danger and he's concerned primarily about his expenses and the risks (laughs) he's taking in lieu of payment uh, from the Egyptians particularly because um, as he says when they land Yurik on Svalbard it will count as an act of war Which is cool. Good. That's a hell of an act of war so statement. good. Isn't it? No letter to, like, you know, the representative of the foreign nation. Just, just like, bear. Dropping a bear. Dropping armoured bear. Yeah. Bear drop. Ultimate mic drop. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting side of Lee that we start to get to see as well, uh, mm-hmm. that we haven't seen so far. His kind of, like, he's quite risk-averse, basically. Even though he's sort um, of, like, a... Um, m- m- maybe not risk averse. He's more mercantile and mercenary. That's a good way of putting what, it. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of took from this whole thing that, at least at this stage of the book, no spoilers. Um, he's clearly not afraid of a fight, willing to do his job, is good at his job, and yeah. you know can fight. But he's a freelancer. He's a yeah. mercenary of he sorts. He sees it as a job. Yeah. It's yeah. not. He's not there for for heart and passion, like like Egyptians are. You know, he's not yep. doing it because he's got a, a horse in the race. He's got mm-hmm. um, a wallet in the race, basically. Yep. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. so he goes on to ask specifically um, what he can expect by way of mayhem and eruptions, <laughs> which I, I love <laughs> as a phrase. And uh, I did a little bit of reading as to what the hell eruption is. Oh. And the uh, etymology of the word eruption dates back to 1825. And okay. it's a uh, dialectical and colloquial of unknown origin. But, you know, I'm going to say American, because this is the only context I've ever heard it. It sounds American. Um, And basically the speculation from the etymologists is that it's a sort of uh, shortening of eruption, i.e., you know, chaos and uh, destruction and shit going wrong, as might happen in 
an eruption mm-hmm. uh, or potentially a shortening of insurrection, which I think seems to be the more likely hypothesis yeah. about where eruption came from. But yeah. eruption, I think, sounds like a cooler, cooler Yeah, source. both of those sound um, pretty speculative, though. That sounds like yeah. a bit of uh, folk etymology there, mm-hmm. but I don't know. But the earliest use is in reference to the Irish Rebellion of 1798 that we all uh, learned about at school and remember well. Um, they, they, they had a bear dropped on them as well, actually. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah, their act of war. And just to, just to round out the etymology, ruckus came later. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which I, I think is fun. So the end of the ruction 19th century. came first and then ruckus yeah. from ruction. No, just, you know, just, extra, extra just bit of knowledge and dropping rocking. on you guys. Uh, yeah, the end of the 19th century <laughs> and was probably formed by combining ruction with a rumpus. <laughs> which is great you get a ruckus out of ruction and rumpus so anyway lee wants to know how much mayhem ructions rumpuses and uh what's the other one ruckuses is likely to go down and whether he should be you know costing for damages to his balloon or his yeah. body in whatever you know fighting is to come <laughs> um we then get a sort of interesting clash between lee's yeah mercantile sort of mercenary hand for hire state of mind or view of the world mm. and what i've written here is seraphina's hippie bullshit <laughs> <laughs> and we can come on to that where she basically turns around to him and goes well you fought before uh, sorry amy if you would that's, care to. that's that's fine i think that, you, you've nailed it perfectly yeah, yeah. yeah um and lee just goes sure when i'm paid in his best hillbilly accent <laughs> um and then we get this kind of yeah, I guess, I guess difference of philosophies about mm. how, how the world should be and how exchange and value either means something or doesn't to Lee and yeah. Serafina. Yeah. And Serafina basically says, I'm not going to do the accent because it will just get distressing for everyone's ears, <laughs> including mine. Um, Mr. Scoresby, said the witch, I wish I could answer your question. All I can say is that all of us, humans, witches, bears, are engaged in a war already, although not all of us know it. Whether you find danger on Svalbard or whether you fly off unharmed, you are a recruit under arms, a soldier, which we will come back to. It's interesting. Because it it? kind of takes away a bit of um, Lee's, yeah, like hand for hire rather than just enforced enlistment. Yeah. Um, But there's a kind of, there's a kind of break in how this conversation goes between them talking about how he will get paid versus his role in this pending battle. Yeah. Um, But just to cover that quote, because it's very interesting, but let's come back to it in in a second. And then we get this whole discussion about which economics, which I kind of want to read the whole thing because I think it's interesting. Okay, sure. So they talk a bit about Lee's choice in this matter versus Mm. not. And Serafina says, perhaps we don't mean the same thing by choice, Mr. Scoresby. Witches own nothing. So we're not interested in preserving value or making profits. And as for the choice between one thing and another, when you live for many hundreds of years, you know that every opportunity will come again. You have different needs. You have to repair your balloon and keep it in good condition. And that takes time and trouble, I see that. But for us to fly, all we have to do is tear off a branch of cloud pine. Any will do, and there are plenty more. We don't feel cold, so we need no warm clothes. We have no means of exchange apart from mutual aid. If a witch needs something, another witch will give it to her. If there is a war to be fought, we don't consider cost one of the factors in deciding whether or not it is right to fight. Nor do we have any notion of honour, as bears do, for instance. An insult to a bear is a deadly thing. To us, inconceivable. How could you insult a witch? What would it matter if you did? So... all super interesting. Really interesting. Um... And I guess we can just have a little bit of a back and forth on this one, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so, (laughs) 
Witches don't need money. Okay. The immortal bastards. Obviously. obviously. <laughs> immortal re- bastards don't need yeah. any money. Yeah. So <laughs> it raises an interesting thought experiment, though. So for any, you know, economists out there, what the hell does an economy look like for a population of immortal people that just live off the land, like <laughs> outrageous hippies that live forever <laughs> and never die? Um, so, you know, do they have any other desires beyond, you know, the food and survival? Okay, so mm-hmm. they don't get cold, so they're not going to get hypothermia. Mm-hmm. And presumably they're far enough north that they won't overheat and don't need air conditioning. Mm. Um, <laughs> and if they can get all the food they need from the land and they don't, well, we'll come onto it, but they don't die as in, in such a short time period that they yeah. need to get shit done before they, anyway. Yeah. What the, what the hell does, what the hell does that mean? So like, do they have any other desires? How do they meet those? Like entertainment, who builds which Netflix? Like, what, <laughs> what's the value exchange for a witch that does like an 80 hour week and builds some kind of incredible like mansion house and witch Netflix versus just a workshop. Witch flicks, yeah. Versus some like work shy berry gatherer. Um, <laughs> and what about incentives to work hard versus not? How do you develop more complex services like lawyers? So we get okay. in this bit, you know, which disputes over um, wars and what if one witch murders another by accident or otherwise? Which witch is guilty? Which witch which is wins which? Um, <laughs> so yeah, like how do you mediate that? And if a witch has to specialize in witch justice systems okay. and the law... When, like, do people just give her all the berries? What if other witches go, we don't need a witch lawyer, fuck this, we're all hippy-dippy. And the other ones are like, no, we do. Okay, well, we'll give her the berries, and you people who don't want the witch lawyer, Mm. you just don't give her berries. Market economy. Hold your questions for one. I've got a rant here, as you can tell. Yeah, Uh, I'm aware of that. (laughs) I can sense it building. (laughs) There are obviously the wars and queens, so presumably there's some kind of service sector or economy that must support that. And a class class or monarchistic uh, system in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And what about specialisms? So, you know, a big part of our economy is that people specialise and get really, really good at doing certain things, and that means that fewer people can get more shit done because you're very good at getting the thing that you specialize in done quickly and well. Hmm. So, you know, not everyone has to learn to be a bit of a software engineer and a woodsman. You have woodsmen <laughs> and software engineers and that's how the world does shit. So... That is a demographic on our street, certainly. <laughs> so what, what does that mean? Like, fuck being the witch that has to make pinheads for a thousand years. But... What does that mean? Do they just bounce from one gig economy? Yeah, they're all they're all like what unpaid zero hours contract laborers. Yeah, basically. Cool. Yeah, they're all polymaths. They just like you know do a bit of everything. Mm -hmm. They're like you know maybe an 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 Uber driver, a cloud cloud pine Uber driver on like a Saturday night, and then they go and like do some witch lawyering on a Sunday, and you know arrow making on a Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. All of these things. Mm, I think it's interesting. It's, it I mean, is... I don't have any answers to these questions. Yeah. Maybe because they... So the thing that sticks out to me is they don't really have it hard at all. No. Like, they have quite an easy life, I would say. And yeah. that sort of makes sense. But then, arguably, sense. so did hunter-gatherers. Like, but then, I guess, hunter-gatherers no, not really, didn't because really get ill. Because they, well, they, they, get, Ill, so. they get cold and they... Yeah. Die. Die. All of that sort of stuff. Yeah. They have a, a shorter lifespan. So maybe a longer lifespan and also, like, not having as many physical needs mm. necessarily like not having a big need list mm. um that explains why their politics is so like off the rails the problem i have with this is it seems to contradict a lot of what kaiser is saying about when lyra's like oh are you are you with us or not basically and kaiser's like well it's complicated mm. but she's so seraphina here seems to be saying 
well, we, we, we don't think about the cost. We just think about if it's right Ooh, or not. They just fly so around I, think, <laughs> I think they're all a load of gig economy philosophers uh-huh. uh, who have like a very intricate political system and uh, they just spend 90% of their time discussing whether or not wars are a good thing and which side they should fight on. And then 10% of their time doing like which Uber. Man, I mean, sounds like they really need VR. <laughs> <laughs> to something else it is an interesting culture though and yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll come on to other aspects of which culture that we get into throughout this chapter mm. i think the idea though of having a culture without trade is not an alien one that does exist but it tends to exist in climates well, they have where... trade it's just like crap barter well no even yeah barter, sorry just... yeah they 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 give me they have they have barter and they have re- reciprocal exchange basically <laughs> sorry i just had this image of one Really, like, taking the piss abusive, like, witch, who's just ridiculously fat. <laughs> and it's just, like, surrounded by all the berries being like, this is how our society works. <laughs> yeah, I need something. Another witch has to give it to me. Give me the berries. I want more berries. That's not, yeah. Go out and get me berries. That is kind of how it would work This here, whole because- society relies on no lazy people. Well, well, okay, so this is the thing, right? Reciprocal exchange does exist in societies, but it needs to be something that has a very uh, strong culture. It typically tends to arise in cultures where there is some kind of other hard hardship. So it happens in a lot of Andean communities. It's like a very famous example of like through mm. history that's maintained a lot because it's a very harsh environment. There is also a lot in um, Finland and Norway as well, uh, which would tie into geographically where these witches are. Mm-hmm. But that's in a situation where you have a small community that are, um, which I guess culturally strong, the witches could still have that, but basically they're fighting the adversity of their environment. Whereas these witches are living in harmony or in in nature or mm-hmm. indirect step with their environment. They're not necessarily having to fight it as much as we would as humans. So I don't really, I don't really understand why they would have this kind of reciprocal exchange system and how that would work because well unless it's very based on honor and like doing the right thing in the community but again she says that witches can't really be offended so Mm -hmm. i don't really understand how it works at all no no. basically i did i did a tiny i did a tiny (laughs) amount of reading but i didn't uh i've never studied studied economics or politics so you know (laughs) totally ignorant of all of these things that i'm sure like an a-level economic student or politics student could kind of school me on but Mm -hmm. Some more bit of reading. Money typically develops in more complex societies where there are lots of people mm-hmm. um, and multiple goods to exchange. So you need some form of value representation rather than literally carrying cows around. Yeah. So maybe it's just that witch clans are small enough that, one, you can work on that bartering system and basically just keep a mental ledger of who's given what to whom so that you don't end up with the lazy-ass abusive witch. Yeah. And also, but then witches can't be offended. So who gives a shit if you got a lazy ass abusive witch? Well, because then the economy would say, collapse if you had like eighty percent of them being lazy bastards. Yeah, I know, but then so there must be. There's always going to be buried. Unless what we're saying is that witches are just innately super great, and none of them are ever lazy or abusive or evil or you know taking I mean, the piss. That's um, the only way I could see it working. It has to be, which is then this like dream ideal utopian society that lots of people I think are skeptical just wouldn't exist, like with yeah. the universal basic income. Would everyone just stop doing anything? And then would your entire economy collapse? Or would it free people to actually do things that are valuable to them and valuable to society? Mm. But even in that, it's kind of based on a load of machines doing half of the grunt work that no one wants to do for you. So, I don't know. Maybe they've just got AI. Maybe Maybe the witches just just have AI AI. robots. They do Um, seem to know a hell of a lot. 
I did. I did ask one of uh, one of our friends, Elliot, about this because he did economics at university, and <laughs> he basically had a ton of questions. Um, but the, <laughs> well, unsurprisingly, so do we. <laughs> but what, what I really like, he just kind of boiled it down to, is like, so does mutual aid mean barter or communism? <laughs> so I like the idea that all these witches are just like uber communists. Um, I mean, that, that weirdly enough, that could work. That sort of maybe works better than reciprocal exchange. Mm, mm. I don't know. In fact, I will follow up and ask Taylor about this as well. Yeah. Uh, another friend of ours who studied politics, and he was interested in um, anarchy mm. and how societies could or could not work, you know, in an anarchist kind of framework. Um, and we should ask him about this because I think he he has, or at least some of the anarchist philosophy or politics is mm. based on uh, basically if someone fucks about in that society you have a cultural norm of shunning them, shaming them, ostracizing them, yeah. or punishing them as a group to disincentivize yeah. fuckabouts. Yeah. So I wonder if he might have an opinion on yeah. which anarchy. That that would... Well, <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, monarchy. What, what a ridiculous... Yeah. Anarchic monarchy. Oh, shit. Oh, there's a queen, but she's got no power. <laughs> <laughs> this is already so complicated. I think it would work, basically, if there's a strong culture and like a very close-knit community because things like uh talkut from from finland uh which is a gathering of friends or neighbors who accomplish a, a mutual task so it might be to benefit one person it might be to benefit the community but that works because of a sense of honoring what's what's right within that community and and it, that being very close-knit and the idea that you know you will you will get back what's coming to you what goes around comes around all that kind of stuff and then also dugnad uh which i'm probably horrendously mispronouncing but mm -hmm. that's uh in norway which is kind of very, very similar, I suppose, or at least to an outside perspective. Um, and it was such a, a core thing in the kind of Norwegian mindset and is really to this day that in 2004, it was voted Norwegian Word of the Year mm. by uh, a TV program called Typically Norwegian. Right. So, uh, you know, super, super mm. Norwegian word out of a super Norwegian yeah. TV show. So it's got to be good, right? Nice. So yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there are loads of examples of this around the world, but I was picking out on those two because uh, they are from the same kind of region as the witches are based, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. But there's Is there multiple. any like summary as to, like, does it work? Oh, yeah, yeah, it d definitely works. I mean, one of the most successful examples is in the kind of concept of Aini, which is like a, a Quechua or Aymara, I think, um, concept in the Andean mountain ranges. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, ve very similar to the Talkut or the Dugnad, basically. And it's kind of work that is done for the community um or done for a so particular like you might person. all build a village hall or you might all repair exactly. a road or exactly. you might all that kind of thing yeah exactly or and a festival are, or a religious are, thing but. exactly and there are mul multiple multiple variations of this which just goes to show that it does work because mm. i think there's a, a different variation of that called minka which is another kind of quechua version um which was a goes back to an incan tradition and that is very similar i'm I don't know exactly the differences between the two, but as I understand it, it's very similar to Aini, but Minka is more like a system of taxation, basically, mm -hmm. in, in a weird way, or at least there's some kind of monetary benefit to those people rather than just being purely reciprocal exchange, okay. if that makes sense. Um, that just of, sounds like... Of labor, you know. Yeah, that just sounds like a free market. <laughs> Well, <laughs> with a different name and a much better name. Yeah, so um, I think I think it does exist uh, mm. in the globalized world today. I think it's quite difficult to see large scale examples of it, but definitely in like mm -hmm. in in smaller communities, in like smaller groups and pocketed areas where there is still that strong community, it definitely works. Mm. She says, "I've no experience." Of that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm going to say, so. I'm going to say it works. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, interesting. I, I don't want to come across as like the raging free market capitalist. My skepticism <laughs> is purely like uh, befuddlement. I, I would I would love it if if this is how society operated, and it's like, hey, I need toilet roll. There are no toilet rolls in the shop. Oh man, <laughs> had to had to hit on <laughs> a pain have, point right yeah, now, didn't you? <laughs> can, can I have some toilet roll? And everyone's just like, yeah, sure. We know that that's not how it works. Yeah, you've seen the shelves recently. Yeah, exactly. I, I would say, I would say, right now is a case in point <laughs> of how this witch society would crumble the second there's some kind of witch illness or a toilet paper well, shortage in the north. You know, apparently all the witches they... just fly around on their cloud pine, refusing self isolate. Yeah. They do fall foul to mysterious illnesses that don't affect humans, that's, don't they? So you know, true, what yeah. if there's like some weird ash disease that affects all the trees and then they all start you know dying off yeah anyway there's 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 debts to be plumbed here yeah. and I, I i particularly wonder about the dictatorial role of the queen just basically exactly through everything exactly going, screw you guys we're doing this and yeah. then everyone's sad rebels kill each other big civil war boom yeah exactly so we've given yes. enough of our, our opinions on this uh but let us know what you think if you think there's a way that it could work or if you have personal experience of working in some kind of different culture or, or reciprocal exchange would be very very interested to hear from you guys in yeah. terms of how the hell does this work <laughs> mm-hmm. philip pullman if we're listening we're talking to you <laughs> so um one thing though that seraphina peckola and lee scoresby both agree on here is the idea about honor so seraphina says that it's an alien concept to witches though it's deadly for bears apparently and after talking about you know would would how you would you even insult a witch lee scoresby agrees saying Sticks and stones, I'll break your bones, but names ain't worth a quarrel. Which I think is like a, a retelling of our version of that phrase, right? I've never heard that before. Uh, no, that's true. That's like a twist. Yeah, I think it's just like a Texan twang, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Qu- quarrel is better than hurt me. You yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. It might be an American. Good. Americans, yeah, let us know. Is this just how Americans do things? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, re- I really like that version. However, Lee Scorsby uh, lays out his trouble with this. He wants a nice little farm to retire to, but for that he needs gold. And so he needs to work for a fair wage to save up enough for his farm. And this, I have to say, this sounds like a perfect little vision of Lee's farm. I quite like like mm-hmm. this idea of his future. It's interesting that he says he's not looking for anything grand, so he wouldn't need any slaves. So that's still a thing. Does he say slaves? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So that's still a thing in Lyra as well. That's interesting. Which is mm. super bad. I would assume it's the same slave trade as we had historically in our world, but I guess a lot of it is different. Hmm. This is supposed to be like a good 70 years-ish after abolition in our times. So like, well, I, I disagree with you on that. But backwards ass. Hmm. I don't know when you think this book is set. Yeah, late 1800s, early 1900s. What? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I'm well, sticking by it. Steampunk era. We Screw can't. It's not the, steampunk. What are you talking about? All of the evidence to the contrary. Okay. Well, we can't talk about the evidence to the contrary yet. But no, anyway. we can. You know, the 1950 thing with the floods. I just choose to ignore it. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're just going to re- refuse to accept any evidence that yep. contradicts your viewpoint. Steampunk Victorian Like all era. humans. <laughs> yeah. But even more so then. So if it's like the 50s or whenever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Slavery so should be abolished, but apparently not. Cool. I wonder I mean, this is just Lee happen. being like, you know, you notice there's no, like, palaces of gold and... Do you know what I mean? Uh, like, maybe, maybe. He's just he might be being hyperbolic. And, yeah. yeah. But, anyway, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Who knows? But here's another point of difference between Lee Scoresby and Serafina Pecola. So as... Oh, hold on. This explains my intro as well. Don't just skip over it. Oh. So, no palace or slaves or heaps of gold, just the evening wind over the sage and a cigar 
and a glass of bourbon whiskey. Oh, a cigar. A cigar. A cigar. A cigar. I, did, I couldn't work out what you were saying before. Cigar. Cigar. I thought, cigar? Who's he? Because cigar is just how Texan people cigar. say cigar. Cause cigar. Yeah. I actually looked up cigar and do you know what came up? What? Scottish Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, no, <laughs> there's a bloody thing. Coming back to yeah. bite you. Yeah. And I, kept, I, I was reading it, loving it, it's sort of going, is this like a, is this supposed to be a Texan Wikipedia, like that Scottish thing? Because, you know, there were, there were very few words that were different in this, like, how to use the word cigar. Uh, and then it said something like, you put Ted cigar in your mitt. And I was like, okay, no, that's, and we're back. Wow. Anyway. Offending more Scottish people. Excellent. I like how these things are cyclical, though, in the yeah, uh, that's Dark good. Material podcast. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, sorry for getting his cigar, but we do find another point of difference between Lee Scoresby and Serafina here, and I like that we learn so much about them and their motivations in this short conversation. They're, mm. not, they're not really giving small talk, are they? They're like straight to the deep stuff, um, because Serafina wouldn't ever think about giving up flying. To her, that is part and parcel of why she's already perfectly content with her life. Um, but for Lee, flying is a job, a bit similar to the the, the war kind of question earlier. Going mm. to war is a job for him. It's a, a feeling and a passion and a motivation for Serafina to do or not do something. And for her, flying is part and parcel of who she is. He's just a technician and he, be, he could be working on anything, but he'd still choose flying. Um, mm. I'm not actually very sure about this, for mm-hmm. those who've read Once Upon a Time in the North, you might know why I'm a little bit sceptical about exactly how much he chose flying. But anyway, we're going to mm-hmm. um, park that one. Also, but- just a quick one. He says, I do my flying in exchange for cash. After every job, I send some gold back to Wells Fargo Bank. Wells Fargo Bank. Mm. I- I'm sure if you're in America, you're like, yes, of course, it's a fucking real thing. Moron. <laughs> It's like the the fourth or the third biggest bank in America. But I've never heard of it. Uh, and it was founded in 1852. Mm. Uh, and they basically acquired the shit out of everything in a long, you know, nearly 200-year history since then. How unusual for a um, bank. Yes. And they got $25 billion in the bailouts in 2009. Ah. So, you know, that's just a potted that's, history that's all, of Wells Fargo. Uh, Lee Scoresby's gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was all him. Yeah. yeah. He bailed them right out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, in response to Lee's repeated complaint that he doesn't like the idea of being involved in a war without discussion... Serafina responds that the quarrel with Yorick Bernison is part of it all as well, that Lyra will have a part to play there too. So I guess she brings this up because that is a quarrel that Lee knows about and has already chosen to take part in. So, you know, mm-hmm. touche there on the mm. argument, Serafina. Pretty good. Um, but in response to this, we get some of my favourite passages in yeah. this book. So we're going to read some of this because it's so fucking good. So I said, this is quite a lot of reading, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm also going to attempt to do some accents. Uh, I didn't do it for this episode, but I, in my head, Serafina's Finnish. Sure. But I have no idea how you to do a Finnish go, accent. You go, you so go I don't know what's about to happen when I put my eyes <sighs> to this book. It's going to offend so many people. <laughs> <laughs> so Lee says, you speak of destiny, he said, as if it was fixed. And I ain't sure I like that any more than a war I'm enlisted in without knowing about it. Where's my free will, if you please? And this child seems to me to have more free will than anyone I ever met. Are you telling me that she's just some kind of clockwork toy wound up and set going on a course she can't change? We are all subject to the fates, but we must act as if we are not. Is that your finish? No, I I, I, re- I reneged. I reneged on the finish. I panicked. Bail out like 2009. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. No, don't do it if you don't want to. Just 
Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm panicking so much. You're doing a facial roll-up right now. I'm not going to do it, but I might try it next episode. We'll see. Yeah. When Seraphina's not in the next chapter. <laughs> <laughs> we are all subject to the fates, but we must all act as if we are not, said the witch, or die of despair. There is a curious prophecy about this child. She is destined to bring about the end of destiny, but she must do so without knowing what she is doing, as if it were her nature and not her destiny to do it. If she's told what she must do, it will all fail. Death will sweep through the worlds. It will be the triumph of despair forever. The universes will all become nothing more than interlocking machines, blind and empty of thought, feeling, life. They looked down at Lyra, whose sleeping face, what little they could see inside her hood, wore a stubborn little frown. Cool, right? So cool. Yeah. So... I guess they also disagree about free will and determinism. Mm. So we're going to have to kind of weirdly tackle that, which is always a fun subject. So basically, I guess Lee here is on the side of free will or libertarian free will, which is not a kind of political thing, but just a philosophical standpoint, which is basically that some human actions are freely chosen is the summary of that, Mm -hmm. basically. Uh, Whereas Serafina seems to be kind of arguing on the side of hard determinism, Mm -hmm. but with a weird twist, because she does say that if Lyra doesn't succeed, then we'll all be like cogs in a machine. Yeah. And one of the ideas of determinism is that everything's yeah. predetermined and we are kind of like old cogs in a machine. Mm. And in fact, one of the um, famous philosophers uh, who originally wrote quite a lot about determinism, uh, a guy called Baron Dolbach, who was a French, half French, half German uh, philosopher, he basically said, more or less, we are all just cogs in a machine doing what we have to do with no actual volition. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what Serafina is saying. But Serafina's also kind of saying that basically everything we do is predetermined and we actually don't have a free choice and free choice is kind of an illusion, hmm. which is weird. It's kind of like we can be nice, happy, pretty cogs or we can be unhappy, <laughs> sad, grey cogs. There, there yeah. seem to be the two choices in Serafina's worldview. Yeah, and, and to be honest, I don't even know where I stand on this, to be fair, because I think that free will is an illusion, but... I, like most people, um, sort of think that they believe both things, but I think free will is just fundamentally very difficult to prove, mm-hmm. but it's quite nice and reassuring to have an idea that you can choose, basically, which is mm. more or less where Lee's coming from. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I think we touched on some of this stuff in our like intro episode on one of the very early ones, mm. and we'll come back, to, come back to the books, but I think it's maybe useful to talk through our personal perspectives or stuff that we've read or thought about yeah. before. Um, before jumping into that. So, again, I, I, I've not studied philosophy. One of the many things I've not studied. <laughs> if you want to know about volcanoes and succession, I mean, I'm your guy. I can tell you all about sand dunes and, oh, and climate change. Love a bit of glaciation. But yeah. anything to do with politics, economics, or basically everything else, like, no, no idea. But uh, my vague understanding of, um, of this argument is kind of, if at the core of everything is just, you know, matter... Subatomic particles, mm. quarks, and then all the way down the chain to whatever is beneath quarks and beneath strings and beneath whatever else physicists are, uh, you know, unearth. You've got two options. Either it's the kind of quantum stuff of random shit happens, Schrodinger's cat. You can't predict things until you observe them. So yeah. basically there's randomness at the heart of everything. And I can't see how randomness leads to free will. 
because ultimately mm-hmm. everything's just made of matter and energy. Mm-hmm. So if at the basis of all matter and energy, it's just random, that doesn't feel like the grounds for a load of free will because you just got random shit happening. Yeah. You've got no control over On the other side, if it's not all random and there's a sort of causative chain that goes all the way back to some point zero, yeah. the Big Bang or whatever, mm-hmm. well, then you've just got the laws of physics playing themselves out in some big machine of A equals B equals C causes X causes Y causes Z yeah. on and on. And you just roll up the subatomic to the human scale and exactly. boom, we're exactly. just cogs in a machine already. Yeah, that's the problem. Because I think a lot of the physical world is seen as deterministic. So uh, a ball flies through the air because it's been hit. But a lot of people who believe in free will think that beings who are capable of thought are able to start new chains of causes and effects so Mm -hmm. maybe the ball was flying through the air because it was hit by someone they chose to do that but as you say like if you regress that back into like well that's just their brain chemistry and why did they decide at that point in time to have hit that ball that's where it starts to get very murky because we Mm -hmm. don't know and one of the things that's very interesting about this is philip pullman is talking a lot at the moment about the idea of panpsychism Mm -hmm. which is starting to address consciousness and therefore affects a lot of like free will versus determinism stuff. Because basically before there was, um, I think it's called uh, materialism, which is where basically the idea that if you recreate the physical matter of a brain and how a brain behaves at a biological, chemical, physical level, then you can recreate a person, Mm -hmm. which is obviously the kind of like hard science, um, matter-based version of things and deterministic in a lot of ways. And then there's the dualist perspective, which is um, body and spirit. So Mm -hmm. typically what a lot of um, religions uh, propose is there is a physical element, of course, but then there's also a spiritual element that can't therefore be physical. And and obviously a lot of people then have difficulties with both of those areas of thought. And there's a new area of relatively new area of thought called panpsychism, which is basically that consciousness exists at a at an atomic level is more or less how I understand it, that consciousness is um, not just within your brain, but at the end of your pencil and at every aspect of everything in the physical world. And that's what aggregates up to um, consciousness of large complex beings. Mm. And that just makes, as if the free will and determinism thing wasn't confusing enough, that just makes it even more confusing. Mm. But I have some hope because I watched a video with Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, and he was talking about free will and determinism. And I'll, I'll link to this video in the show notes as well as a very good introduction to free will and determinism if you're interested um, by the guys at uh, Crash Course who would do a yeah, lot like of excellent stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Daniel Dennett in this video is talking about free will and determinism and defending free will, but from a standpoint where it initially starts to sound like determinism and i think this is the closest that i can understand how seraphina's talking about things because basically so if we think about the idea of that ball flying through the air i think daniel dennett used the idea of a brick flying through the air right i don't know if a brick falls towards your head right mm-hmm. you can take the action to dodge that brick from from hitting you 
And, um, I do have those reflexes in the scale, <laughs> yes. You do have those reflexes, yes, exactly. So uh, Daniel Dennett then says basically that the way that humans have evolved is that the idea of avoidance and perception is something that's very key in terms of the argument between free will and determinism. I'm articulating this way less clearly than he does in the video. So if this doesn't <laughs> okay. make sense, don't blame me. Just go watch the video because it's much better. <laughs> but um, basically he's saying that your ability to perceive that the brick is going to hit you and perceive possible futures and avoid an undesirable one mm -hmm. is what makes a difference and is important to him in the concept of free will, even though there wasn't going to be any other future than the one that there was. Sure. Because you were always going to choose to avoid the brick, mm -hmm. unless for some reason you wanted to be hit by a brick. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. that's your prerogative. You want to get hit by a brick, that's fine. Do it on your own time mm -hmm, in. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that's some aspect of free will that he's arguing for in terms of the idea of choice and avoidance and perceiving possible futures. And that's, yeah, that's, I don't know. that's oh, the only I, thing I, that I, I can possibly think. That. I have not watched the video. I will watch the video. That sounds interesting. <laughs> but like, that feels to me a bit like, so what? Exactly. And also to like me, it sounds computer, like determinism. If a computer ran a load of different simulations and still did the same thing anyway, does that, yeah. I don't see how that's any different to just, look, this machine with loads of cogs in it came up with a bunch of different scenarios before it inevitably paid out the scenario yeah. it was always going to play out. Yeah. So, But I, I, really I could that. see how that's why Serafina will be thinking about um, destiny and ending destiny, but also kind of not just being a cog in a machine. You are a, a, a being that has a a richer life than that and a richer way of perceiving life around you but ultimately mm. it is deterministic yeah i don't know i don't know how to square that circle basically but yeah. yeah yeah it's a very confusing set of the book yeah and i guess like there's there's one other angle well there are probably a thousand other angles but another one is the kind of even even if at the level of subatomic particle physics or quantum mechanics or wherever that line gets drawn things are deterministic or random doesn't mean there aren't abstracted layers above that that feel like free will mm. or to all intents and purposes are free will. Mm. So, for example, we don't try and model, I don't know, the weather at a subatomic level. Yeah. You group up patterns of, you know, how loads of atoms behave together in what we call wind <laughs> at, you know, a meter squared scale. And yeah. then you forecast and figure out your wind patterns. You don't People don't operate on the level of atoms all day. You don't build a computer on the basis no. of how quantum physics works. No. Unless it's a quantum computer. Yes, but like, then you do. <laughs> you, know, you don't build a car on the basis yeah. of how string theory operates. So you could make the same kind of argument that, well, in our day-to-day -day experience in the sort of parameters of human life, we don't work in the subatomic realm. We're not talking about mm -hmm. nanosecond to nanosecond. So to all intents and purposes, yes, you do have free will yeah. because you're never going to be able to truly comprehend or think on the scale of all the chains of causality that make up your current position and then the next yeah. nanosecond of but, time. But maybe you don't need to. Hmm? But maybe you don't need to think on that level. What do you mean? Well, you just it's just going to happen anyway. You know what I mean? No, no, no. But all I mean is like the illusion of free will probably matters more than the practicality of it not existing. Yeah, true. we just true, true, don't true. operate yeah, yeah, yeah. on those smaller or massive scales. I see what you mean. So I see what you mean. Yeah. To some extent, yes, of course, free will exists. That's how everyone operates. Mm. And hey, postmodernism. <laughs> mm. mm, book of dust. Yeah. No spoilers. So... Oh, it's super interesting and confusing. And they also talk a lot about destiny. So Serafina wisely notes that to try and change fate is a fool's errand. 
and can mm. only end in despair. And then we get finally the reiteration about Lyra's destiny. And similarly to what the master said in chapter two and what the consul of the witches stated in chapter 10, we get told again that Lyra must not know that she's de- destined to do these things, that she cannot be guided, but she must only be doing it naturally. So maybe the illusion of free will to, in, in Lyra's case is very important, even mm. though Serafina is basically saying, fuck off, Lee, you don't have free will, you're going to join this battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're in it already, just get get on board, you stupid cog. Yeah. Whereas Lyra, she's a very special cog. She must not know she's a cog, yeah. uh, but she's a cog nonetheless. I heard someone, by the way, uh, at work the other day, and I this is genius, someone yeah. went, sort of uh, half sarcastically oh you know I'm, I'm just a cog in the machine I don't have the power to do this you know yeah, blah blah yeah, blah yeah. like, like oh, I, I'm not in control of this thing I'm just, yeah. I'm just a wee little cog yeah and this guy just turned around and went uh, I, don't know, I don't think you're a cog I'd say you're more like the grease <laughs> 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 Which I just think is brilliant. Yeah, maybe Lee's the grease. Yeah, maybe yeah. Lee's the grease. I don't know. But anyway, and it's interesting as well when she's talking about the repercussions if Lyra fails, she mentions that it will impact universes, mm-hmm. plural. All the universes so, specifically. Not just Lyra's world, but perhaps these other worlds that we learn about from mm-hmm. Kaiser and we know the witches know about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and just, to, uh, just, sorry, just a hammer, hammer home my little point and my little lad in bash, there. Bash, not just bash, some of them. Bash. Like all. All of them. So there is this universal yeah. effect on all the universes um, that Lyra is tied to. It's not just hers and maybe another one. It's a good um, job she doesn't know, right? Because fuck, that'd be so stressful. Pressure. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. All of the universes on your shoulders. Never take a day off. <laughs> so they move on to talking about Lyra and Roger specifically, and so will we. Yes. Um, so Lee basically asks Serafina if she knows that Lyra came all this way from Oxford and that Roger is a playmate of hers from from Oxford, from Jordan. And Serafina basically goes, yes, I did know that. Lyra is carrying something of immense value. And it seems like the fates are using her as a messenger to take it to her father. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really interesting because then she gets into this kind of... She does eventually hold up her hands to go, well, this is just how we read things. Uh, so, I might be super wrong. I'm only 300 years old, so what do I know? Um, but basically, as, her, as she reads it, the, the fates, which mm. is interesting that they're kind of given some agency here, yeah. deliberately bring Roger to the north. Yeah. So if we work our way backwards, the ablation will take Roger. Roger gets taken to the north. Lyra likes Roger. Lyra gets given the alethiometer. Therefore, in Lyra following Roger to the north, Lyra brings the alethiometer yeah. to the north and thus to Lord Azrael. Because presumably that's what this something precious being brought to her father is, the yes. alethiometer, would you say? Yeah. And again, this is one of those arguments a bit like, not to like slam on, on religious people, but when people say, oh, thank God, or thank goodness it wasn't yeah. me in this car crash, or yeah. there's a little um, a phrase there, but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah. And... It's it's one of those things that always irritates me because, well, I I actually heard this from Christopher Hitchens, where he kind of said that phrase there, but for the grace of God, go I, really, you could could translate or turn into there because of the grace of God goes anyone at all. Yeah. And it's a slightly strange, like, that's a super roundabout way of getting Lyra to the north. (laughs) Like, what we'll do is get child snatchers to steal this kid and then she'll (laughs) follow them via Mrs. Coulter into Egyptian boat party and then they'll raid their way north and eventually... Lyra will catch up with it's, Roger. It's like, very God simple. damn it. If the, fates, if the fates are that powerful, just like put a meme in her head that's like, I super need to get north. <laughs> so, like, I've had a vision, I've had a vision, and i got to go. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It, it is starting to get a bit like Spaghetti Junction with all these fates tied to Lyra. Yeah. It, must, it must be said, there's a lot of fates tied to hers. Yeah, like what a roundabout way yeah. of achieving a goal, fates. Come on, <laughs> be a bit more direct and on the nose. Um, 
So yeah, then Lee clarifies that, okay, so this is how the witches read everything that's happened. And as I kind of said before, Seraphina looks unsure for the first time. And she says, that is how it seems. But we can't read the darkness, Mr. Scoresby. It's more than possible that I might be wrong. It's like, well, okay, well, the last 20 minutes of conversation were a bit of a waste of time then. (laughs) What a waste of Um, time. Why am I even asking you any of this shit? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, you know, it's good to see some humility on behalf of the witches there. That's, That's quite nice. Lee then goes on to ask why the witches are involved at all, uh, given their, you know, hippy-dippy commune um, <laughs> philosophy and economy. Um, and basically, it's through a series of sort of chains of obligation and duty. So uh, there's this idea of the enemy of my em- enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. So the Egyptians are against Bolvanger, and mm-hmm. therefore so are the witches, because they think what the people at Bolvanger are doing uh, is wicked and wrong. Fair. Um, they also have their own ties to the Egyptians through Seraphina's relationship with Father Corum mm-hmm. and the help that he has rendered her in the past and vice versa. So there's that kind of mutual um, exchange of, well, love, uh, but also just like helping each other out. Yeah. And then there's Azriel's um, support for the Egyptians with the watercourse spill and all the stuff we learned about way back when Father, uh, John Farr was saying, let's go fight. And therefore the Egyptians reciprocal duty to Azriel. So all these kind of exchanges of we owe who xyz yeah um kind they're of taking this that... reciprocal exchange very very seriously. oh yeah i mean there's multiple layers to this yeah. this isn't this isn't simple communism <laughs> this is like extreme barter communism um which would be a great board game <laughs> uh yeah so that that's basically why the witch is involved it's through a sense of kind of moral duty because they disagree with everything the people of Balvanger are doing but yeah. then also just practical duty is and well they owe people mm-hmm. and other people owe them and etc <laughs> Lee then basically asks if he can have a ride home. So once they've got to Svalbard and he needs to leave again, he's like, uh, can you just like give me a pull? Because it's a long, long ass way. I love I love uh, that we get Lee to kind of, to balance out Serafina and vice versa here. Because it's mm-hmm. it, they're such a good pairing in terms of Serafina's very sincere the whole time, which is always talking about like epic scale type things mostly. Yeah, and then yeah. Lee's just kind of like, yeah, you're going to give me a ride home though, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to pay me. You know, it's just it's quite cheeky. It's good. Yeah. And he specifically says, um, so you're towing the balloon to Svalbard for the Egyptians' sake. And does that friendship extend to towing us back again? <laughs> Which is great. I'm asking merely in the spirit of friendly inquiry. He's uh-huh. so good. Yeah. I feel like his sense of humor is a bit wasted on Serafina, though. Yeah, 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 true. She's pretty pretty deadpan. Yeah. But she basically uh, dodges that question, non-committal, bit of politician's <laughs> answer here, Serafina, saying that they don't know what they'll find on Svalbard. It may be that there's fighting to do and um, the new bear king, who we'll come on to, mm-hmm. has made so many changes, they really don't know what will happen when they get to Svalbard. Interesting. Um, and on that note, Serafina says, the old ways, i.e. the bear's old ways, are mm-hmm. out of favour. It might be a difficult landing, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll obviously come on to this um, new king, but we've heard a couple of times that, you know, Jufa Rackneson has some slightly strange... I guess, changes that he's brought into the yeah. Bears. And there was all the sort of piss-taking of the Jordan scholars back in the retiring room. Yeah. So anyway, we'll come on to a lot of this in Yeah, it's in all quite chapters. mysterious. And like, well, yeah. if Serafina doesn't know what's going to happen, that's a little bit nerve-wracking because she's she's like the local, basically, with, <laughs> our, our, local. <laughs> with some Skull knowledge with of how, how things happen. Yeah. Even though Kaiser has said before, you know, witches and bears don't necessarily work together a lot because they don't understand each other. So I don't mm-hmm. know, it's interesting. Yeah. And in this kind of... Um, panning 
motion that this yeah. chapter takes of like, oh, here's all the high level politics stuff. Now let's zoom in on Lyra and Roger. Now let's move <laughs> on and zoom in um, over on to Yorick. They do dwell briefly on him and how he's attached himself to Lyra as a kind of protector. Aww. And there's this really nice line from Lee that's, um, if a bear ever loved a human being, he loves her. Aww. Which is really nice. Tied um, to Lyra by more than just feet. Yes. And I think it's, it's interesting as well that he, uh, he picks up on that. And also you've got this definite kind of bear psychology as opposed to human, i.e. Yeah. if a bear is capable or has ever yeah. loved a human being, yeah. then this is a special relationship between the two of them. Mm. Um, I just think it's quite nice. It is quite nice. So there. Lee then goes on to kind of wrap up this conversation with, um, okay, forget, forget all this crap. <laughs> Whose side am I on in this <laughs> invisible war? Uh, that Serafina has Which is a weird question to in. ask. Why is he asking her? Well, I guess he doesn't even know what the sides are, does he? He's like, uh, right, so, so you've said I'm a soldier. So. Uh, who am I fighting for then? Uh, Fine, I have a choice in the matter. Who, who, who yeah. am I fighting for? Yeah, fair uh, enough. Don't tell me where to point and shoot. <laughs> um, and Serafina basically says they are both on Lyra's side. Not, thus clarifying not all helpful. things. <laughs> not helpful. And Lee just says, oh, no doubt about that, ma'am. I think he does anyway. I don't have that quote, but... Sounds yeah, like something, something like he would that. Say. That's exactly what he would say, yeah. So, that's the big philosophical everyone's in... Well, actually, no, that's the big philosophical Lee and Serafina conversation. Come on to the one between her and Lyra in a second. Yeah, that's true. Oh, God. But Lee then <laughs> checks his instruments as they continue to fly north. It is minus 20 degrees. Holy which shit. I looked it up, and for our American listeners who use that Fahrenheit shenanigans, yeah. is basically zero. Zero. Zero, zero Fahrenheit. Zero, that doesn't sound zero cold. Zero Fahrenheit. What's it in Kelvin? Wait. <laughs> Minus 253. <laughs> okay. No. That would be 20 degrees above zero. Shit. You I don't do know. This. No, wait. Uh, plus 250? Uh, that's going to annoy me. <laughs> yeah, plus 253. Come on. Don't test my yeah. physics knowledge, Amy. Um, <laughs> And they are 10,000 feet up, which I also nerded out about and was like, hmm, what height do humans survive at? But it's totally cool. 10,000 feet for, for the majority of people, they'd be okay in terms of oxygen. I'd say it's cold, not cool then. <laughs> True. Skeptical as to whether it would actually be minus 20, though. You know? Oh, really? Would it be colder? Uh, no, it would be warmer in huh. most cases. But well, they are a long way north. north. Yeah. And also winds. And also it's yeah. night. So, you know, we'll give Pullman the, the benefit of the doubt in his knowledge of the, you know, atmosphere, troposphere and stratosphere, kind of the, the layering of the atmosphere. Right. We'll, we'll, they are we'll, in the high we'll, airs. We'll give him that. Yeah. We know that much. Yeah. So satisfied with his instruments and their general trajectory and all that stuff, Lee rolls out a windbreak and snuggles up with Yurik. Ah. doesn't roll out a windbreak, he rolls out a bivy bag. Bivouac. Yeah, but it's as a windbreak. Yeah, it's a bivy bag though. You're looking confused. As a windbreak. <laughs> it's just like a, a sheet that he uses. Yeah, yeah it's like a tarpaulin yeah. that he uses yeah. as a bivouac sometimes. Yeah. But he's using it now as, as a windbreak. Wind <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, it is nice that he goes up to Yurik. But more importantly, he goes these up to Yurik, which is super good because that I fur like would that. be well nice. A smelly though. Um, and falls asleep. Stanky. And covered in blood. Stanky and covered and in blood, but cozy. Cozy. Cute bear. Slash terrifying bear. <laughs> so, um... And then there's a bit of a cut in the chapter. Um, we rejoin the balloon troop again when Lyra wakes up an indeterminate amount of time later when the balloon and all around is bathed in moonlight. Sounds sounds very mm -hmm. nice, doesn't it? Very picturesque. Everyone else is asleep apart from Seraphine Peckler, who confirms to Lyra that they'll be at Svalbard in 12 hours. Such a fucking long time. Which is a long time. Yeah. And 
I so in the definitive guide to his dark materials by Laurie Frost, which is excellent by the way, mm. if anyone um is interested in extra information about his dark materials, highly recommend. Uh, there's a map on there about roughly where Bolvanger is. And according to that guide, they uh, put Bolvanger around Alta in Norway, which is basically almost at the tippy top of Norway. Ah, so far north. So far north, um, which is actually further, further north than I would have thought. And I don't know what that's based on, to be fair, but I don't know if that was reviewed with Philip Pullman or if he said mm. roughly that's the right area. But anyway, um, and if we assume they're going to Longyearbyen, uh, on Svalbard, and I just like saying Longyearbyen. Yeah, it's and a I'm going to keep saying Longyearbyen. Longyearbyen. So from Ulta to Longyearbyen is nine, 944 kilometres, or 587 miles, which means if they're getting there in 12 hours, they're at least, or at most going, 78 kilometres per hour. Okay. Or 49 miles per hour. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Which sounds reasonable. In fact, probably quite slow for a balloon of that kind, Ooh, I would say. Being pulled by witches, yeah. Oh, yeah, being pulled by witches, that's being true. Being pulled by witches. Yeah, yeah, witch speed. But then again, they might be against the wind, or they certainly mm. are at some points. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Seraphine is not sure where they'll land, as it depends on the weather, uh, but hopefully it's in Logiebian. Um So ideally somewhere away from Joffa Ragnarsson's palace. But they need to also avoid the cliffs, as apparently there are creatures there who prey on anything that moves. Mm, I wonder if that will come up again. Couldn't possibly, could it? <laughs> um, so Ly- Lyra seems to question aloud about what she should do about Lord Asriel when she finds him, which is quite quite a nice little part, actually. She's just kind of like quite anxiously sort of talking aloud about what she's thinking about. Mm. It must be sort of verbal diarrhea sort of on top of her mind, basically. Um, will he want to come back to Oxford? Should I tell him? I know he's my dad. Uh, it's not clear if she really expects Serafina Peckler to answer this or whatever, but um, certainly Serafina seems to have an answer to the first. Apparently, Lord Asriel will want to or need to go into another world. Hmm. So not back to Oxford, by the sounds of it. Um, as Serafina explained that he is the only one who can bridge the gulf between that world and this, but he needs something to help him. Interesting. Bad man. And cool. Mm-hmm. And how does Seraphine Peckler know this? Yeah. Just fates and mysterious hippie stuff. <laughs> 300 years old. Yeah. So Lyra excitedly exclaims that whatever it is that Lyra has must be conveniently and logically whatever he needs. It couldn't possibly be that he actually needs uranium or dilithium crystals or, you know, anything. It must <laughs> sure, be something yeah. that Lyra Balakra specifically has on her person at all times and can give him. That's very mm-hmm. realistic um, so Lyra speculates that this uh, must have been why the master wanted to say something about Lord Asriel and the atheometer that of course he didn't really want to poison him or anything and that Lyra could help him read the atheometer to work out how to make this bridge all sounds very logical and reasonable but Serafina is quite non-committal about this or exactly why he needs whatever he does merely saying how he'll do it and what his task will be we can't tell there are powers who speak to us, and there are powers above them, and there are secrets even from the Most High. Which, what what the fuck does any of that mean? Don't know. Like, super cool, though. Why are, just mysterious. Why are all the witches, like, schizophrenic? Like, <laughs> I th- I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more sold on this hippie idea, that they're all just there, like, smashing LSD and just kind of going, what? I mean, the people yeah. speaking to us, and they're like, oh, have some berries, man. Microdosing berries, yeah. Hey, man, like, just, just chill out, just take a cloud pun, <laughs> just fly around a bit. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I don't know what's in that resin but it's definitely affecting them. <laughs> i um, love the idea that's such a good build on the witches they're all just like super all just high <laughs> they're just super high yeah 
I mean, that must be it. I like that. Explains that's, a lot. That's tickled me. It's just it like flying around, like shooting people in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I am so good at archery. I'm like 300 years old, probably. Uh, <laughs> 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 I think we're all just like, we're in this like big machine, man. And then like, if this girl just gets to the end, then like, oh, it'll be happy rainbows. Otherwise, it'll be sad cogs. <laughs> Anyway, I'm gonna fly off my clamp line. Why now. why are we here, witches? I uh, just tied to Lyra. Why are we here? We're just tied you're just tied to Lyra. Yeah, just tied to Lyra. Just shut up, stop asking questions. The darkness we can't read. It. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so Lyra considers getting the Alethea Mutter out there and then to read it and ask about all these big questions. Um sure. but it's far too cold, so she snuggles into her hood instead cozily, which is a smart move, I mm-hmm. would say. Especially in minus 20 or oh, so glad I'm cold, isn't it? Fahrenheit, whatever bullshit it was. Um, <laughs> so looking out at Serafina and the other witches flying, she asks her why she isn't cold. And Serafina responds as enigmatically as ever, merely saying they do feel it, but they can't be harmed by it, so it doesn't bother them. Which is weird. Mm. And I was like, I suppose that means that they don't die from exposure then? Or hypothermia? So they must have like fundamentally different physiology and like body chemistry to us um mm. so i was thinking about this about other other animals that don't die from hypothermia well very quickly and also, sorry just before you dive yeah. into that this is this echoes what yurik says as well about um yes that's uh, not feeling the cold when yeah when, I, when lyra's asking do you feel lonely and he's like lonely i don't know what that means in the same way that i don't feel cold so i don't know what it means to freeze um, or bears don't freeze, so I don't know what it's like to be cold. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's just kind of interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, it is interesting. And I was also thinking if witches were real and they did feel cold, they definitely wouldn't be conveniently falling into the sort of conventionally attractive aesthetic of the mid-90s and being, like, very thin. They'd be covered in blubber and, like... walrus witches walrus witches basically and they'd be like having a small surface area of (laughs) skin they'd be a perfect sphere (laughs) they'd be a perfect (laughs) sphere sphere of like 90% blubber Mm. uh, just to like properly insulate themselves from the cold or there is there 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 is another um, there is another option basically what's the other option Amy (laughs) well some some animals do have, have adaptations to basically not be affected by the cold in very, very extreme conditions. Um, I think this is called cryobiosis, which is like specific adaptations to the cold. survive in sort of extreme cold, basically. So lobsters can do this, apparently, mm-hmm. which is cool. That's key. The unassuming lobster, actually mm-hmm. pretty badass and extreme, <laughs> extreme lobster. Um <laughs> So basically, a lot of animals, or sort of like Arctic fish, for instance, have an equivalent of something that's kind of like antifreeze in their blood. Because one of the things that happens at very severely low temperatures is that if ice crystals form um, in the blood, they can kind of like puncture cells, basically. And that's what a lot of the cell damage uh, happens when you're below a a very, very low temperature. Frostbite, exactly. Mm. I mean, there are obviously gradations of that and like worse... um, well, less severe things that happen before you get frostbite, basically. Um, but yeah, I was wondering if maybe they have some kind of antifreeze in their blood that stops them from like that. being negatively affected. Pine resin? Um, pine resin. Oh mm. my God, it's all the pine resin that they have. Mm. Because they're always so high on pine resin, they're mm-hmm. like 90% resin yep. in their and body. The, and the magic berries that they find. 
next to the mushrooms that they put in tea. That's got to be it. That's got to be it. And then I just did a load of reading about tardigrades because tardigrades are great. Tardigrades are super cool. Yeah. They're because, the indestructible ones, aren't they? Yeah, they're super indestructible. Yeah. They, they they can't freeze. They can survive in space. They can be completely dehydrated and then just be fine when you put them in water after like 10 minutes. Um, they are they look like tiny bears. If you mm-hmm. know what tardigrade looks like, they look like tiny gummy bears. Yes. They're small and uh, usually like bright orange or bright pink. If it, if it uh, wasn't for ridiculous. the sort of horrendous mouth, they would be really cute. <laughs> the, I think they're really cute. Uh, yeah, apart from the horrendous they can, mouth. They can survive like extreme radiation, I think. Yeah. I'm going to post the tardigrades because it's just uh, it's just a great read. They're like fucking cool animals. <laughs> um, so witches are the tardigrades of this world, I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then Serafina also says that despite this lack of sensitivity to the, to the cold, they are able to feel other things that they would miss if they are wrapped up against the cold, such as... The bright tingle of the stars, of the music of the aurora, or best of all, the silky feeling of moonlight on our skin. It's worth being cold for that. Which is interesting, and like, I don't know. It seems extra sensitive, so I know that they're quite closely linked to nature, but there's some kind Mm. of supernatural element to that in terms of like, yeah, having this very physical sensual connection to nature basically goddamn hippies it's pretty cool (laughs) 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 it'd be cool though like if uh well Mm. interesting it's gonna say like sunlight on your skin definitely feels like sunlight on your skin yeah that's true actually if you had the moonlight moonlight version it'd just be like a weak version of that because it's just reflected sunlight i wonder if witches would be extra susceptible to sunlight they'd burn (laughs) <laughs> famously famously they've got factor nothing <laughs> actually i bet they'd be like super tanned because they're just flying around you know in like arctic uh, summer and yeah. snow reflecting up and yeah. like doubling down on your radiation dose maybe yeah. they are like tardigrades surviving all sorts of radiation and extreme cold and yeah yeah highly melanated mm. so lyra is excited by this whole idea and asks if she could feel all of these weird things as well to which seraphina is like no you fucking idiot. Like, <laughs> stay, stay snuggled up in your furs because mm-hmm. you'll die, which yeah. is fine. Um, so Lyra asks her how long witches live, saying that she doesn't look old at all. But Serafina astounds her by confirming she's 300 years old mm. or more. She mm. hasn't even bothered to count because she doesn't even care. Yeah. Or she's really high. We don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the oldest witch she knows is a thousand years old. Yeah. She's just crazy um i don't know if like this means that they age slower or if they age at the same rate as us or do they not age at all or do they not age at all do they have like more mature babies than us because like (laughs) 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 hear me out hear me out okay so human babies are born like very relatively incapacitated to other animals so we have like very immature babies when they're born they're very dependent on their parents if you compare to like an ibex uh, when it's first born like within a few hours can be like scaling a cliff or something yeah. you know so comparatively human babies are like, like we're born as fetuses born, more or less born as fetuses, animals, yeah very yeah. dependent um if they age slowly does that mean that they would have basically like a hundred years of not really being able to oh, do very much <laughs> and like being a baby for like 10 years and then being a toddler for like oh, another- I see. <laughs> 70 or something mm. i don't know i Old also wonder about um like which birth rates because you know the whole over, overpopulation thing 
Yeah. People live forever. Well, I've decided if I was a witch, I'd just mm. be gay because it sounds like a lot of heartbreak. We'll get onto it later. Oh, yeah. Super painful. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not a choice, but like, just try. Because <laughs> 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 it's just going to be yeah, better for everyone. Brilliant. Well, after 300 years of trying, <laughs> you'd figure it out. <laughs> um, yeah. And then Zeravina goes on to say that um, one day Yambe Aka will come for her. One day she'll come for me. Um, mm. So Yambe Aka is a, a new concept that's introduced here. So in the witch's religion, I guess, um, this is the goddess of the dead. Mm-hmm. And she comes to witches when their time is up, basically smiling um, and takes them away to the underworld or, or to you know somewhere else. Um, and that's how witches view death in their culture, in their religion. So I'm sure you've done more research on this than I have. But, oh, yeah. Uh, in, a, in a nutshell, um, Yambayaka is the uh, sort of old woman of the dead and the mm-hmm. underworld, mm-hmm. at least as the internet describes it, um, in Sami religion. So it's a kind of shamanistic uh, type of religion that Yambayaka is part of. Um, and Yambayaka in that Sami religion basically escorts the dead uh, to the spirit world, where the, dispar- the departed spirits walk on air, which is cool. It's so cool, isn't it? There's a surprising lack of information about Yambayaka, but um, I did look a bit more into Sami shamanism in general. Uh, so Aka, um, which is the last part of Yambayaka's name, means, uh, I guess, generally wife slash woman slash female deity slash spirit. So it's kind of like, um, as I understand it, can be translated into lots of different versions and there's a kind of feminine force of nature in sami um shamanism and, and religion uh as the akka which are basically three main akka deities uh so uksaka or door wife which is um to do with childbirth so it's a mid midwife and helper of newborns and um protecting children from in, in illnesses and and someone that you might talk to about menstruation and other things like that in terms of fertility. Um, and Saraka, who is who is involved more specifically, I guess, in terms of childbirth. And very interestingly, the, the way that this particular um, article phrased it was that she helps to mold an unborn baby's body around a soul. So is like very, mm. spe- have a very specific role in bringing a life into the world, basically. So not just in terms of helping with childbirth, but also like bringing a baby into, in, into being. So I guess if, if your baby was stillborn, then that would be something that Saraka would be involved in because the baby's soul wasn't properly molded around them, perhaps. I'm mm. speculating a bit there, but, um, I could see how that would be a way that you might think about things in that culture. Um, and then there's also Juxaka, who is Bow Woman, cool. um, who is the goddess, which sounds badass, right? But then you're like, eh. Uh. Who is the goddess who can make an unborn child male, which is the eh bit. Um, Wait, what? Otherwise, the what? They're all female of, by default. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's so very witchy. Kind of, but then also like... I don't know, it's the classic thing of like, oh, boy babies are better. So, you know, you've got to have a specific person that you pray to, to like, uh, to get you know what I mean? You have to proactively seek also, a Also, it's kind of like girls know, are dope because they're the default. It's like you've got, uh, to, you've got to have someone intervene to make the do. And I, also, I, I like, go either way, I like the anyway. connection here to the, we'll come on to this, but there are no male witches. So I kind of like the idea that's, that that's maybe maybe point. they've just forgotten about, was it, what was it? What was her name? Juxaka. Juxaka. 
Maybe yeah. maybe they've just forgotten. Maybe maybe oh, they've just forgotten about it. Good them. good side theory. We'll come on to it in future books. <sighs> that will be good. Future books because there's there's more there's spoilers there. Yeah, there's spoilers. Oh yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Oh, that's so cool. Hmm. Okay, we're gonna have to talk about this after the podcast is finished. Hmm. Anyway, um, so those are the th- kind of like three acres of Sami shamanistic religion, basically. Um, there's also Biavi, who's the who's the sun goddess. And if you're interested in Sami religion and in Biavi specifically, there's a very very good um, spirits podcast about uh, Biavi in particular. So we'll link to that in the show notes. It's really really good. So. Spirits is in the spirits podcast. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, which is a podcast called Spirits. About spirits. <laughs> about spirits, yeah. Well, they drink spirits. <laughs> and all, all of these Akkas had somewhere that they uh, were believed to live in the home. So some would live near the door, some would live under the floor. I think Yambayaka maybe lived under the floor because that was her realm of, of the dead, basically. Um, so it's it's quite interesting. I think it spanned quite a wide area of geography, but we're going to talk a bit more about that in, in, a, in a moment. But basically... Um, is present in uh, Finnish mythology and also in Estonian mythology, as well as in uh, Sami shamanism. This idea of akas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so cool. So yeah, a bit more about uh, Yambayaka and the world, world of the dead. Uh, so as you said, uh, in the world of the dead, uh, people walk on air, but also everything is described as being the opposite way around. So oh, it's like down. opposite land, the upside down. Um, and she, as a goddess soothes the spirits of dead babies but everyone else dwells in sorrow so like babies okay. she'll soothe as in like it's okay don't worry it's but everyone like, else she's like yeah so, sort yourselves out you, you're so you grown up you kind of want to die young uh, or is it more I than guess, the babies couldn't control know. themselves I'm not sure. Let's go with that. I'm not sure. Um, and also it's interesting in uh, Sami Shabanism versus like I guess Christian traditions or a lot of other traditions um the idea is that the the living and the dead are almost like two halves of the same family. There's a lot more interchange and and dialogue between um, people and their and their ancestors. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting culture and um, ideas and traditions around that. So it's a very very different um, worldview, basically, and really really fascinating and badass. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty cool. Okay, so we also met the Sami back in chapter something, Hamza, Hamza. Armour, one of the parts yes. about armour. Yes. Um, and actually off the back of that, we got an email from Lo. Um, hi, Lo. Thanks for your email. Um, uh, so yeah, it's taken us forever to come back to this because <laughs> we've just had multiple episodes. But it's also um, relevant now, I think. But yeah, yeah, now, now's, now's the time to return to it because, uh, yeah, we're back on back on subject. Um so basically, in, in that episode, we just kind of talked about different myths about the Northern Lights from various cultures around the world and just like touched on Sammy and then moved off again. Mm-hmm. Um, well, those raised some really interesting points that uh, we should kind of cover now that we're talking about them again. So they don't just live in Finland. They're all across Norway, uh, Sweden, Finland and uh, parts of Russia. Mm-hmm. Um and I think we said there was like they speak Sami and there are like 10 different Sami languages. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Um, but I think the key thing here is, like, I didn't realise at all, but they are kind of both historically and then I'm sure today a kind of persecuted group. So um, even the term Lapland for you know part of this area that they live in is kind of a slur in one of those languages. Um, so it's almost an insult to say that so many people live in Lapland because Lap means something um, offensive to uh, to those people. And I almost wonder if part of the reason Lapland is called Lapland is as a 
derogatory term for the people mm. that live there mm. um so yeah it's it's not brilliant to say that sami people come from lapland because yeah that's obviously um in their language or in one of the languages not exactly a brilliant thing to hear um and the area that they live in as they call it is uh called sapmi and i have no idea if i'm pronouncing that right <laughs> uh, but there is a a name for the kind of region that the sami people occupy mm. that spans multiple nations as we know them today yeah so thank you Lo, for getting in contact with us we always love to learn uh more and uh yeah it's definitely an area that we were very very ignorant about so um it's mm-hmm. good to learn more yep um i believe Lowe's written a kind of essay not just about um the sami people in the history uh, of that part of the world but also specifically from a, his dark materials perspective mm-hmm. so like where does pullman get his influences what are some of the geographies that we've been talking about um so we'll link to that in the show notes just one quick thing though uh it's got some spoilers in it depending on where you are in the book yeah. so i don't know just be mindful maybe it's something to read at the end of northern lights or at the end of the trilogy um but it's really really interesting i just don't want people to get spoilers if yeah. they're trying to do this completely spoiler three. Yeah, free. I'm pretty sure it has spoilers in for the whole trilogy actually. So if mm-hmm. you haven't read it before, I wouldn't. Um, but it, yeah, it's a really admirable uh, essay to try and tackle what the Nordic influences are from Pullman's work because a lot of the time he's just like the North capital, and <laughs> yeah, it's sure. like where, where specifically Pullman, where, yeah. and it's like a very interesting mapping of that to like actual. Um, nordic cultures and geographies so very very cool Mm -hmm. so back to lyra then yes uh she asks if there are men witches nope oh fuck (laughs) oh fuck man you don't you don't get to live old live for a long time yeah Yeah. uh so it's not just like a kind of matriarchal society but it's like the best club ever of these immortal super high (laughs) hippies that can fly fuck absolute outrage So then there's this whole uh, section. There's a lot of kind of reading we want to do from this chapter, but it's because there's a lot of it in here. And it's great. Um, Yeah, it's super great. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to read this whole section on how witches view human men. Yeah. So basically, Serafina explains that there are men who serve them, like the consul at Trollesund, Mm -hmm. and um, there are men we take for lovers or husbands. And what she says is, Men pass in front of our eyes like butterflies, creatures of a brief season. We love them. They are brave, proud, beautiful, clever. And they die almost at once. They die so soon that our hearts are continually racked with pain. We bear their children, who are witches if they are female, human if not. And then, in the blink of an eye, they are gone, felled, slain, lost. Our sons, too. When a little boy is growing, he thinks he is immortal. His mother knows he isn't. Each time becomes more painful, until finally your heart is broken. Perhaps that is when Yambayaka comes for you. She is older than the tundra. Perhaps for her, witches' lives are as brief as men's are to us. Oh. <sighs> and that's the bit that made me, makes me think, just just be a gay witch. At, le- at least, you know, experiment yeah. a little bit. Because yeah. that sounds exhausting. In fact, this is almost like a natural selection for a fully yep. lesbian culture. Because yep. all the people well, who are heterosexual would... They can't create more witches. But they live forever. Because what she's saying here is that, oh, maybe yeah. maybe you only die when your heart is broken so many times that you can't stand it anymore. So then oh, all the lesbians shit. are left behind being like, well, we got each other, so sorry you're dying. Oh. But like it would be, it's basically, it would be like a natural selection filter to just have this like <laughs> uber culture of Stop immortal, immortal lesbians. <laughs> Incredible. 
Well, we've, we've fixed which well, culture. I mean, we still I, don't I, understand I, how their economy works, but we know how their sexuality should. I love how <laughs> I love how from the beginning we've taken this sort of chapter from uh, just just a witch yeah. through to now this exclusively lesbian <laughs> club of immortal hippies getting high on everything and just living in some kind of commune. <laughs> And then occasionally, like every every few thousand years or whatever, they might they might have one witch who randomly, you know, reneges against the society <laughs> and like the deeply entrenched heterophobia and yeah. like goes and sleeps with a guy basically. Mm-hmm. And then you get new witches, but they don't hold it against them because they're you know yeah. they may be maybe born out of sin mm. and they'll be they'll be. They'll pray the straight away with uh, Yambayaka, <laughs> yeah. and it'll all be good. But then that keeps keeps you know a bit a bit of fresh blood coming sure, in. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Interesting. There we go. We fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, all of this is uh, very real and near for both uh, Serafina and Lyra because they then move on to talking about Father Corum. Um, and Serafina basically says that she would have given up being a witch for him. You know, she would have forsaken the star tingle and the um, light from the aurora and all that stuff. And she would have become Egyptian boat wife and she cleaned even... his clothes and cooked his meals. Oh, so. Hell yeah. So bad. What a fall from grace just, that is. <laughs> she just said she wouldn't ever stop flying. And then she's like, oh, yeah, but Fadakoran was well fit. So right, I, w- I would stop flying for him. Yeah. She wouldn't know, would she? No. I think she would for a bit. I mean, can you imagine? Nothing wrong with being a housewife, you know? Or a, or you, a house... Or a house husband. husband. yeah. You do you. But equally, like, you're going around flying on a cloud pine up in the sky, yeah. feeling the star tingles. And then <laughs> on the other side, what? You're just going to pickle some herring. I mean, that's one <laughs> hell of a Not Not even shift. herring. Not, you don't even get herring. You're just eels all the Eels all day. Eels, eels for eels, days. Eels, eels, yeah. eels, eels. If anything, Fadokorum should just move up north and get a cabin. <laughs> I feel like that's the... That's the exchange. Um, but yeah, it turns out they had a baby that died in a sickness that came out of the East. Very pertinent uh, to COVID-19. Very, 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 very. You know? And this was a real epidemic as well. The epidemic yeah. of 57. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember the old, well. the, Oh, the epidemic of Wait, 1857, yes. I remember it well. The Asian flu. Yeah. The flu pandemic. Um, yeah, no, it was an avian, avian flu uh, mm-hmm. influenza that um, originated in... China and mm-hmm. spread across the world, uh, and we don't really have clear records of how many people died, but estimates range from like one million to four million. Damn. Um, and yeah, it was pretty bad. But it like more older people died than um, than younger people, uh, as often happens with flu. Though some do also target like both both young and old. Uh, so yeah, I guess this was based on that part of history. Mm. Um, the 18, 1857, yeah. yeah. No, 1957. Yeah, no, just 1957. Yeah. 1957. Mm. 2057. <laughs> yeah, it does feel a little bit too real with the uh, COVID-19 outbreak at the moment. Mm. A little scary. We then learned that uh, Serafina's mum dies during this, um, what should we call it? Frisson? <laughs> with Fadakorum. <laughs> Is that vaguely the right word? Uh- I don't know. I don't know, I don't know how to use the word free song. It's just yes. a word that's somehow it's absolutely around absolutely the that. right word. Um, so she's the queen and has to go back and look after her clan. Mm. Uh, and Father has to just kind of carry on, mourning the loss of his baby. And Serafina is doing the same, but she's queen. So, yeah. yeah. It's all good. That's a good end to a relationship. I've got to go. Got to be a queen. <laughs> 
It's also interesting that they clearly, in this witch society of, you know, immortal lesbians who get high all the time and fly around, uh, have bloodline inheritance. So despite their years and years and years of wisdom and general exchange economy without the need for money and mutual value and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. still going for monarchy, are we? Yeah. So the best way of deciding... still the best system, is it? You've had a lot of time to think about it. Are you sure? Yeah. Leadership, (laughs) skills, you know, people, democracy, none of that. Nope. We're a bunch okay. of immortal yeah. monarchs. Fine. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, let's hope they don't get a despotic one, because then that <laughs> shit lasts a long time. It definitely does. I was just thinking as well, do you think which, uh, which sons are different in any way? So you know how you would have like a, a pizzly bear, which mm-hmm. is a polar bear, who is mm-hmm. the hybrid, mm-hmm. as we know. Um, a Mitchie. Which... A Mitch. A Mitch. Or a Wan. <laughs> a Wian. And any of those options, they're, they're all great. Um, yeah, do you think they have different properties in some way? Or are they just I think like they're super emo. Humans? They're super emo. They're so emo. <laughs> High tolerance of resin. I don't know. Or, or they're like uber right-wing conservatives with very sharp haircuts. If you've got the hippy-dippy witches <laughs> on one extreme, their sons are just like very uptight and conservative. Yes, that would be perfect. Yeah. And they think they're immortal yeah. until they know that they're not. And then they yeah. just get like super angry. <laughs> And they all become incels. <laughs> yeah. This is a very weird picture we're painting today. <laughs> yeah. So my he- headcanon is that Martin Lansalius, the witch council in Troversund, is a half-witch. Because mm-hmm. if you remember when Lyra re- meets him, she says he looks witchy. Mm-hmm. We don't know what that means, but I'm taking it to mean, in my head, his mum's a witch. And he's got eyes. Uh, he does have eyes. He, yeah. Very, very perceptive. <laughs> well you. done. He has noteworthy so, eyes, doesn't he? Have noteworthy I think eyes? he has green eyes like yeah. a serpent demon. Yeah. Not that I remember these classic, things in detail, but classic whatever. witch eyes. <laughs> yeah, that that's my theory anyway. So that's what I'm sticking with. Oh, I just hate this whole bit between Seraphina Pecola and and Father Corum and how it tore pieces out of out of her heart it's just so heartbreaking um and the saddest thing is she never saw father Coram again even to this day even though she heard of his life of his deeds she sent help to him hmm. when he um was injured by a poison arrow so clearly she still cared for him and wished him well but she's also heard as well after he was physically hindered by this illness how he gained wisdom and learning and she felt proud of him and his goodness but all that time she stayed away, partly because of threatening witch wars, which, badass. Yeah. We need more of that, please. That mm-hmm. would be good. Um, but also because she was hoping he'd forget her and settle down mm-hmm. with a human wife. Yeah. And he hasn't because no. Seraphina Pecola, you yeah. know. Go Pecola or go home. That's <laughs> Yeah, true. There's also a bit in there about uh, when he's shot with a poison arrow, she sends herbs and spells. Yes. So yeah. magic. Kind of just needs to leave that hanging there a bit. Because yeah. otherwise it'll get spoilery. Question mark. But some form of spell in theory exists. Yeah. And then Lyra is as indignant about all this bullshit as I am about this, stoutly declaring that Father Corrin would never settle down with anyone else. He still loves you and she should go and see him. Mm-hmm. And Serafina is a bit like, eh, I can't really read the darkness, you know, I don't know what it means. Um, and she's worried basically that he would feel ashamed of his own age. So she clearly still cares about him and doesn't want him to be her. Oh, she's just ghosting him and it's like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> um, But Lyra thinks the least she owes him is a message, which is actually probably quite good advice and quite like yeah. perceptive of Lyra here. She's 
coming off as suspiciously mature for a 12 year old girl but anyway um and uh seraphina is at least silent for a time and appears thoughtful so it's quite interesting that she's potentially learning or thinking or setting something off here from from lyra's side and she's quiet for so long that pan becomes a turn and flies to her branch to acknowledge that perhaps they had been insolent Wow, like yeah. first time for everything, isn't Oof. there? Really, Lyra. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she's never done that before, so yeah. she must respect Serafina quite a lot. So Lyra does the usual thing and completely changes the subject. Mm-hmm. So, All right, moving on. <laughs> bit awkward. Uh, why do people have demons? Just the first question I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and Serafina Pekula happily joins in in the speculation, stating that she too doesn't know, even though it's a question that everyone asks about, but no one knows for sure. Um, they only know that this is what makes humans different from animals. And Lyra agrees, relaying how strange she finds bears, for example, but then also pondering aloud about the fact that Yorick said his armour was like a demon to him. This is clearly confusing, as Pansabion don't seem to be like typical animals. They're kind of half mm-hmm. half human, half animal, but they seem to be very different. Um, but more like humans than animals in many ways. But the fact that this is what Lyra thinks about when Seraphina says animals is is interesting. And it's clear that without demons um bears are considered an enough of a different class altogether to mm-hmm. be sort of treated in a different way just because they don't have demons basically even though they display personhood and and like intellect and can communicate with humans mm. because they don't have a demon they seem to get tarred yeah with it's this a bit brush. like a weird caste system isn't it uh, definitely because yeah. like witches uh in many ways are as strange to humans as bears are but mm-hmm. because they have demons even though they can separate Mm. They get treated in a very different way, I think. Mm-hmm. So Lyra's talking aloud at this point, also thinking about the fact that Yorick made his recent set of armour, therefore making his soul effectively. But she doesn't get any further with this thought and solving this puzzle um, than we will on this episode either, uh, as she soon moves on to wondering about why he's going to Svalbard now when they will fight him and maybe even kill him. And she says in in sort of thinking about this, she responds, I love Yorick. I love him so much. I wish he wasn't coming. Oh. Oh. He loves her. She loves him. That's nice. That's very nice. Yeah. Although, isn't it kind of her fault? Like, he, he's he's there because yeah. he was defending her. That's why he's going to follow her. He jumped in the balloon. She also talked him into doing it. Yeah, and that's just... Of. It's not like he's going, come on, guys, let's go to Svalbard. I super want to go. Let's all go. Should we go? Um, so, yeah. It's yeah. odd. I don't understand why he's going to Svalbard. Because uh, you're kind His of making His fate's him. tied to you, you idiot. Yeah. Everyone's just doing what you do. Yep. Um, so then Serafina Pekala drops a high-altitude bombshell. Oh, nice. Yorick is a prince. Mm-hmm. A high-born bear. Mm. And if it weren't for the circumstances of his exile, he should be king now. Mm. The plot thickens. So apparently, Yorick had fought with another bear over a she-bear. We like she-bears. Nice, nice. I like that. Yeah. Uh, but also wonder about the culture around this, as presumably she-bears are as strong and as vicious. So, you know, there's some weird, like, still bear patriarchy going on, weird, where he's, like, fighting for her. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah, true. You've um, got to offset the witch matriarchy, though. <laughs> Women are coming out on top right now, you you immortal bastards. (laughs) But in this particular fight, which was supposed to just be a show or a test of strength, basically, the other he-bear... I'm not going to use marked... marked, I'm not having she-bear and bear. It's going to be she-bear and he-bear. Female bear. (laughs) The male bear. Um, The other male bear didn't surrender, um, as is usual. So apparently, despite the bear's sense of pride and honour, they would always bow to superior force in these cases. But that didn't happen. And the rumour is that Joffa Rackneson muddled his mind with herbs. But in any case, Yorick got angry 
and killed him. And in this particular part of the story, Yorick was in the wrong as he should have merely wounded. So it's it's quite a like um mm. a heartbreaking story to hear really because we've grown to love and like like Yorick so much as a character at this point and Lyra marvels at this as well and recalls what she heard in um, the retiring room from the Palmyrian professor who had said that Joffa Ragnarsson had tricked his way to the throne but she's also perplexed because Yorick said and proved that bears can't be tricked so this is getting a bit uh, muddied now but then she starts to see the flaws in this Yorick was tricked by the people of Trollicent so her whole fencing thing with Yorick, mm-hmm. there must be something else going on. So then Serafina comes up with um, an idea about why that might be happening based on Lyra musing aloud on all of this. So she says, when bears act like people, perhaps they can be tricked. When bears act like bears, perhaps they can't. No bear would normally drink spirits. Yorick Bernison drank to forget the shame of exile, and it was only that which let the Trollison people trick him. Mm-hmm. Good, good logic. Yeah, I quite like that. Mm-hmm. Lyra also likes this argument, and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that sounds about right. No, I'll that's, take my, that. that's my I'll... current favoured hypothesis. I'll move on. <laughs> just, just very quickly, going back a bit, there's um, a section about uh, where Serafina is talking about Yuffa Ragnarsson. Yeah. Um, so Yuffa is also a prince, of course, or he wouldn't be allowed to rule. Um, and she describes him as being clever in a human way. He makes alliances mm. and treaties. He lives not as bears do in ice forts, but in a new-built palace. He talks of exchanging ambassadors with human nations and developing the fire mines with the help of human engineers. And then she kind of wraps this up with, he's very skillful and subtle. Mm. So all of that backdrop is kind of important to know about this bear. That's a Um, good point, actually. Not least for how how it impacts like what ostensibly, allegedly, innocent (laughs) until proven guilty. <laughs> um, yeah, how Yorick's fate came about, but yeah, uh, that's a good catch. Mm. Uh, so anyway, Lyra likes this, likes this reasoning, um, and she's impressed that Seraphina Beckler might reason it out in this way, and says she's probably cleverer than Mrs. Coulter, uh, which Seraphina Beckler doesn't respond to at all because she knows she's shit hot. She's like, yeah. I'm 300 years old, of course I'm cleverer than that stupid bitch. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so they carry on in silence for a while. Uh, Lyra chewing on some horrible sounding dried seal meat she just found in her pocket. Mm-hmm. Good job that keep, that stuff keeps well because that must be fucking gross. Um, Lyra then remembers her last and most important question. What is dust exactly? Seems to be causing quite a lot of bother. But unfortunately, we're not going to get a clear answer yet, ever, possibly. Seraphine Peckler doesn't know, boo. Um, witches don't bother with it which is just great you know fine Um, witches definitely need to develop a sense of curiosity or at least accept a few research fellows into their culture because I feel like they could Mm -hmm. they could develop a lot of shit they Mm -hmm. could think outside the box Um, anyway so many missed opportunities but all Serafina can say is where there are priests there is fear of dust Hmm. which is interesting. And of course, Mrs. Coulter is also lumped in with this fear of dust as she is so closely tied to the Magisterium, the Ablation Board, and even got the funding for Bolvanger all around dust. So um, I guess I take from this that although she is embroiled with the Magisterium, she can't technically be in office as a priest because she's a woman, but she's still involved in all of that. Yeah, uh, priestliness. Priestliness and yep. politics and um, fighting for the side of the magisterium and religion in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Though, interestingly, um, I meant to make this point earlier, but I forgot, Yambayaka and the witch's religion is the first experience of religion we have in Lyra's world that is different to the magisterium. That's true. Yeah. 
Um, yep. So that's just something to note. Mm-hmm. So Serafina more or less says like, I don't know, which is fine. Um, but she does finish by then saying, so dust may be strange and we wonder at it, but we don't fret and tear things apart to examine it. Leave that to the church. Mm, which is smack down on the church. Smack down on the church, but also like, do they have no curiosity? Do <laughs> they have a culture that completely suppresses any kind of like scientific examination and like critical thought? And I, I don't They're know. They just don't seem to care about anything. Yeah. Like they definitely think about questions in like a philosophical way, but they don't seem to like, I don't know. She seems very dismissive of. Uh, maybe they just got no interest in progress. Yeah. They got everything like they need. Like, they're interested in right and wrong. got all the resin they need to get exactly. out. They don't yeah, give yeah. a shit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting as well that the church is lumped in with scientific progress and development and thought in this world. Mm. So, again, mm-hmm. we see that correlation. Yeah. Um, so, through all of this referencing to priests and the church, Lyra remembers her idea from chapters and chapters before that... Um, dust could be moving the alethiometer's needle um, and then basically drifts off and wonders, oh, maybe Azriel will explain it to me. <laughs> and then in true Lyra fashion, falls asleep <laughs> so that the chapter can fucking move on. Um, so then we get this kind of wrap up reminder that the four travellers sailed on, sleeping in the ice encrusted balloon as it flies towards the rocks, glaciers and the fire mines and ice sports of Svalbard. Yeah. And then we get another abrupt break. This chapter is kind of carved up into three distinct parts. Yeah. Serafina and Lee, Lyra and Serafina, and then this final section. And despite <clears> those three <throat> meaty, meaty parts, we are attempting to cover this in one episode. Oh, which it's is a bold. meaty ass episode. We've been speaking for weeks it's now. It's like the venison of episodes. <laughs> um, so, Please, dried sea on Lee. Yeah, true. Serafina calls to Lee, and straight away he can tell something is wrong by the movement of the balloon basket. The witches are barely able to hold on, and yet if they let go, as far as his instruments are indicating... They would get swept off towards Nova Zembla at over 100 miles an hour. Nova Zembla! So, let's talk about Zar Bumba. Um, <laughs> no, I've got no more no more research on I it. Actually, I actually do have more research uh, on Nova God Zembla. God damn it. <laughs> Thank you to Milen for yep. pointing us onto this. So, there's a book called The Writer's Map, which mm. Philip Pullman happens to be in and does like an interesting uh, piece and article about um, devising a map for his book, The Tin Princess, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a part in there about Nova Zembla. We talked a bit about Willem Barents, who was trying to find the Northwest Passage to try and go north, basically, round the Arctic, Arctic to get round to China to, to trade, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had two failed attempts to find a passage through there. And in the third one, got caught in sea ice off Nova Zembla, and the, him and his crew were forced to overwinter there, mm. which is like... That sounds crap. So crap. Um, so they tried to melt the permafrost to get some wood, but failed. So they had to build a hut out of their ship to survive. Mm. There were 16 men um, and a cabin boy, and they managed to survive until June, mm-hmm. right in Good the going, yeah. very, very north there, um, surrounded by sea ice, uh, obviously doing a lot of like hunting and, and stuff like that to try and survive. Um, but then they were still stuck in in the ice so they couldn't really do anything so they had to kind of desperately try to set out um they all had scurvy amazingly some of them did manage to get all the way back to amsterdam mm. but willem berens wasn't one of them Ugh. he actually died uh, as part of that uh, attempt to get home it's not really clear if he was um buried at sea or if he was buried or um cremated somewhere on nova zembla itself 
but you can guess which option I prefer. Definitely. Yeah, I well. like to think that Burns is there. Somewhere on Nova Zembla. There was one other thing as well. The Nova Zembla um, phenomenon is something which is was first observed as part of the expedition and recorded by the people who were who were overwintering there. And this is where there are um, different thermal layers, differently heated layers of the air, and it reflects refracts light. Um, so what happened was they were overwintering there, and obviously there was no sun over winter because they're so far north. But one day, one of the crew members um, claimed to have seen the sun uh, coming up over the horizon. But it was two weeks prior mm. to when the sun was supposed to be appearing. So everyone else was just like, you're talking shit, mate. Like, there's no sun. We're not going to get another sun for another two weeks. There can't be sun. You're just, you've been on the rum or something. Um, and there was also actually an argument about if they were using the wrong calendar, which was quite funny. Because oh, okay. that was mm-hmm. the time where it was like ACDC, uh, Gregorian slash uh, whatever. Um, but... Uh, that's actually just because of this phenomenon. <laughs> wait, wait, sorry, hang reflects. on. I, I just, just brain buffering. Not ACDC, <laughs> no, ACBC. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> so, so just something triggered and I was like, uh, it just took my brain ages to go, wait, what went wrong? ADVC, sorry, sorry. No, anyway. Um, yeah, and that's uh, that's now called the Nova Zembla um, effect or phenomenon, mm. which is a polar mirage. And interestingly... Cool. It happens with the sun, obviously, mm-hmm. in this example, but it can make landmarks appear above the horizon where oh. they're not actually there, which is, uh, there's a legend about that's how Greenland was found because they saw it as a polar mirage, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even been a case where cities mm-hmm. have been seen as a mirage floating above the horizon. That's cool. Uh, so I will uh, post something in the show notes about the... Um, an instance of that in China where a, a city appeared to be floating in the sky. Oh, that's Can't not, imagine that, what that's that relates That's not the to. polar effect, though, is it? I found the same that's thing. The, that's the uh, Fata Morgana weird, weird clouds. Um, thing. <laughs> weird clouds? Yeah, but yeah. I, I think a polar mirage could do the same thing. Oh, if there was a city, the other side, yeah, dope. Just saying, just saying. Cool. Um, well, yeah, no resemblance. The endless, <laughs> endless bits of information. As if we didn't have enough sidebars. tangents, we had to go Glorious. into no resemblance again. Um, I did a quick bit of research on wind speeds and basically 100 miles an hour, not likely. It's <laughs> <laughs> my summary. I think, I think um, it's... Okay, the, fine. There is this whole thing of they are basically way too high and Lee wants to let them down again. Uh, the jet stream does go over the, this general part of the Arctic Sea that they are supposed to be over. Yeah. Um, but the jet stream is at 30,000 feet and at that height you'd all be dying. So okay, probably uh, unlikely think, then. I think Pullman's, Pullman's got his uh, atmosphere a bit wrong. Calling, Just saying, Pullman call, call in your out, Pullman. Yeah, like you know, do more of all the things we could possibly do more atmospheric research, Pullman. <laughs> <laughs> um But you know, like storms happen. There are yeah, fast winds yeah, there. Yeah. It's just typically it's not much more than ten miles an hour yeah. or ten meters per second or whatever the thing is, but not this fast. Okay. Uh, so he basically, Lee, this is, shouts to ask where they are, and this wakes up Lyra. She can't hear Seraphina's reply, but Lee lets some gas out of the balloon to uh, bring them back down. It's clear that something's going wrong with Seraphina and the witches as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, like really yeah. scary. Yeah. Um, Roger wakes up and it's just massively oblivious. He's just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, don't worry. When we get back down, we'll have some sausages and get warm. <laughs> Just like <laughs> stupid, stupid asshole. What was that impression? Uh, this is me channeling audiobook, audiobook Roger. <laughs> it was perfect. It yeah. was perfect. That's how I always picture Roger. Um, 
So they descend through the cloud with Lee having let out some of the gas. And when Lyra starts to ask if they are nearly down, she can't finish her sentence because... A huge creature appears. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. (laughs) Um, So this massive hideous creature is climbing over the side of the basket towards Lee. And it's half the size of a man, has big leathery wings and a frog-like face with large bulging eyes. Super nice. And it stinks, which is also good. Uh, You know. Sexy, everything about it, so sexy. Uh, so Lyra is about to scream, um, but quick as anything, Yorick reaches up and cuffs it away, causing it to tumble off. Uh, I, sh- I just love that Yorick has Lee's back. It's so good. Yeah, and Yorick gives no shit. It's clearly just back <laughs> Yeah, he just yeah. like, whatever. And he's like, Cliffgast. Don't laugh at my Yorick, okay? It's great, Yorick. I was about to say I don't laugh at your Serafina, but I do. Um <laughs> So now we know what cliff glass are. I'm assuming this is what uh, prey on anything that moves in the cliffs here. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the use of ghast, which is um, from Middle English gaston, mm-hmm. uh, to frighten, afflict, or torment, which mm-hmm. is where we get a ghast, be ghast, ghastful, ghastly, ghastliness. Ghastly is in the things. Pokemon as well. <laughs> <laughs> what, what noise does ghastly make? Don't know, actually. Ghast. Probably. Probably. They all like just that. say their names, don't yeah. they? <laughs> actually, no, I think it's got more of a ghostly whoo. So I think it's more like, ghastly, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was just thinking, well, what would Yorick do if he was a Pokemon? But let's not go into that. Yorick. 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 <laughs> Yorick. <laughs> Yorick. Rawr. <laughs> Although a deeper voice than that. Anyway. Uh, oh, dear. Oh, he'd be such a good Pokemon. He'd be an <laughs> he's amazing so Pokemon. Good. He'd be like a legendary Pokemon, for he'd sure. He'd be well legendary. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Don't some of the legendary ones have armor? Uh, probably. Yeah, probably. There's definitely Pokemon with armor. Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so this um, Seraphina suddenly appears next to them, urgently explaining that the cliff gas are attacking and they need to land so they can defend themselves properly. But the rest of her suggestion is lost as a huge tearing sound comes from above. The balloon lurches, throwing Lyra, Roger and Lee to the side of the basket. Is, is, is this the back of the balloon tearing? Do you think? I don't or know. Like, this bit's it's a bit really, unclear. It's really confusing and yeah. like scary and like what the fuck is going on. Yeah. Um, so Yorick's holding them all in the basket like the hero that he is. Mm-hmm. Seraphina has disappeared again. And all the while the horrible shrieks and stench of cliff gas is resounding around them. The basket's juddering. But then there's another huge jerk and suddenly the basket feels like it's hurtling downwards, spinning as though it's just completely loose and plummeting to the ground. Oh, and then bad. it bounces around as if thrown between two hard surfaces. It's just like how fucking terrifying is this like mm-hmm. what is going on um lyra sees lee pointing the barrel of his gun directly into the face of a cliff gas faced faced and then lyra shuts her eyes in fear and clings to yorick's fur which is just un- understandable i think in mm-hmm. all this um and i love this description of the mayhem and terror all around that makes me sound like a psychopath but <laughs> uh it's it's a great bit of mayhem writing. and ructions <laughs> He called it. I mean, he called he it. Did he did call should, it. He should have he had more it. insurance. I mean, where's his indemnity clause <laughs> in this whole contract? Damn Egyptians. <laughs> so we get a description of howls, shrieks, the lash and whistle of the wind, the creak of the basket like a tormented animal, all filled the wild air with a hideous noise. Mm. It's just not nice. Um, there's another huge dot of the basket then, and then Lyra falls out completely 
landing somewhere and at first completely confused about where she is before she realises the cold crystals in her mouth must be snow and she's face down in a snowdrift. Mm. Um, remarkably, she's mostly unhurt and the alethiometer is intact too. Lucky protagonist, mm-hmm. as ever. Fated. Um, <laughs> but severely battered and sore, so she spits out some snow and stiffly stands up to look around. And she's landed in a snowdrift in between two cliffs. Yeah. So lucky, can cool. you imagine? So you just brush yourself off and walk away. Uh, I, I would, give a shit. I would just, like, poo myself immediately. <laughs> <laughs> So she tentatively calls out for the others, but soon realises that it's probably a bad idea, very sensible, and might attract exactly the wrong kind of attention, so stops. Um, it's foggy all around and grey and ghostly, and there's drifting fog banks that everywhere that are described as like wraiths. So short Tolkien nerd out, mm. because wraith, I always think about Tolkien, because sure. there's another Middle English word uh, from writhen, which is, a, well, actually, no one knows where it comes from, etymologically speaking, but Tolkien's favourite one was that it comes from Middle English writhen to like twist or turn or to weave. Um, ah, like writhe. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like writhe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he, that that was his his idea, and he was a philologist, so you know he knew about all of these things. Um, but it's generally used as like a ghost or spectre, especially someone's likeness, basically seen after their mm. death. But interestingly, I thought. You may disagree. You're yawning at me literally right now. Wow, that's so rude. We've been going for so well, long. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how you think about this. So it was first used or first like recorded in 15, eight, 1513 in a Middle Scots translation of the Aeneid. Ah, how good is that? That's well good. Uh, and it's used in three places in that translation of the Aeneid. Uh, I'm going to only read one of them. and not in the original Middle Scots because that will just embarrass oh, everyone. But, uh, for example, such as that, they say, in diverse places, the wraiths walk of ghosts that are dead. Mm. Oh, that's good. I want a middle, middle Scots version of the Aeneid. Like, how was that Scots a thing Wikipedia. that happens? So good. <laughs> Wait, wasn't that your whole theory about Scots? The Scots is a real thing? I know, it's it, from it, it, the it, Middle Ages. It and... is a real thing. But oh, like... wow, look at these dots. Joint, dots yeah, I suppose it is up. a bit confusing. That's great. I like the last of course one. it exists. I, I retract my former statements. Of course it exists. I'm not at all surprised. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Cool. Anyway, so she can't see much and all she can hear is a distant sound of waves and cliff gas shrieking very high above her and she wishes aloud to Pan that they knew where they were. But he says, we might not like it if we did, he pointed out. We might be up at the bottom of a cliff with no way up and the cliff gas at the top to see us when the fog clears. There's that imagination, yeah. Lyra. There you go. We knew we had ever, it in them. <laughs> ever positive man. <laughs> so they stagger forward, having landed in this lucky snowdrift, or fated snowdrift, and move away from the waves up the beach. Uh, there are no signs of the balloon or any of the occupants, but they find some sand that has been let out from the balloon's ballast bags um, so that Lee can go up again. So, you know, she's abandoned. How bad is um, this? Like, I, I would be, like, so full of anxiety at this. Like, uh, do you know what I mean? I would yeah. be, like... Oh, so like scared and terrified, but also like kind of angry at being left. Yeah, in a weird way. But equally, what are they going to do? You know. Oh no, completely understand. But yeah. you know, yeah, it's yeah. a terrifying moment. Um, Lyra admits she's frightened to Pan, and then they hear a scraping noise, and Lyra thinks it's Yurik, sort of half calling out his name, but it turns out to be another bear, oh, clad shit. in polished armor with the dew on it frozen into frost, and with a plume in his helmet. So this bear then roars, uh, the sound echoing off the cliffs, and another bear, and then another, come wandering over. The first asks, 
channels audiobook. Your name? <laughs> Where have you come from? In a balloon? <laughs> I've just realised I've missed all of Lyra's things, because when I wrote this out, I was like, just do all the bad dialogue. So Lyra obviously responds to all these things. <laughs> Um, saying, Lyra, where have you come from? The sky. And he asks in a balloon. And then uh, in response to this, he just says, Come with us. You are a prisoner. Move now, quickly. And so weary and scared, Lyra begins to stumble over the harsh and slippery rocks following the bear, wondering how she could talk her way out of this. Yeah. She's got, she's got to find some way to talk out of this palaver. She finds a way around everything. It's yeah, going to be famously, fine. Famously, bears very easily tricked. Yeah, famously. That's what we've learned. That's um, what we've learned. Oh, God, this is so... This is like a very bad end to the chapter. This is also like peak chapter. Oh, This chapter. chapter. I mean, how long have we been talking chapter. now? Like two hours? Days. I mean, we'll edit it down we've to just, a shorter. We've just but gone like... through the entire lockdown period. <laughs> <laughs> We're now on to COVID-20. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so good, right? More bears. More bears. Not not the greatest bears, but no, you know. But they've got like armor. Three more bears than we had last time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had uh, all the witch, the elucidation of the yep. witch culture and, you know, the lesbian hippie commune society. I don't think there was much high. elucidation of the culture, but we definitely elucidated a lot of it. 100% so, accurate yeah. and canon. Um, <laughs> we got more of Lee and his general outlook on life philosophy. Yeah. He can shoot things in the face. But that's cool. <laughs> he can shoot things in the face. He's also just generally a great character, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lyra didn't learn much about her destiny, but we did. No, that's true. That was interesting. Yeah. And she must not learn. And Otherwise, my, we're all screwed. My heart was broken into a thousand pieces yet again, and mm. more chunks torn out of it yet again. Thank mm. you, Philip Pullman, mm. uh, with Seraphina and Pradicorum. Just like beautiful and tragic and sad and painful mm. and I hate everyone. You should just become a witch, Amy, and get high on berries and, <laughs> and become a lesbian. <laughs> it's the only good option. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode of the Dark Material Podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you're not ready to step back into your own world yet, please visit our website at thedarkmaterialpodcast.com and our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash darkmaterialpodcast. You can also hit us up on your lodestone resonators through Facebook at The Dark Material Podcast, Twitter at Dark Material Pod, and Instagram at The Dark Material Podcast. If you want to cut through to our world directly with questions or comments, we're also available at thedarkmaterialpodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying The Dark Material Podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. It helps other fans of His Dark Materials find the show. A special thanks to Jamin Persaud for the music on The Dark Material Podcast. You can find him at Roulette on Instagram. We'll see you next time for Chapter 19, Captivity. And until then, don't forget to tell them stories. <laughs>